Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to episode 47 of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 47 called A Room Full of Fun, where we'll be taking you back to the arcades in the Magic Kingdom, as well as over at the Fiesta Fun Center in the Contemporary Resort. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me, as always this evening, is Mr. Hal Bowers, who had done a lot of research for us tonight. So welcome to the show, Hal, as always. Aloha. My fingers are are dirty with, you know, the, the smell of coins. and. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have a one of those change belts, maybe, where you can, you know, give out the change? Yeah, that's the, right. Yeah. You know, the, the apron, you Got one of those, got a, got a machine, exactly. so at the end of the night I can dump the tokens in and count them all up. There we go. Yep. Well, coming to us from Ohio, he's counting all the skee-ball tickets, is Mr. J.T. Couser. Yes, I, I just went to Chuck E. Cheese recently, I was sending you guys pictures. We were there counting the tickets and the, yeah. the whole thing. We still have one within walking distance. Uh, it is tokenless now, though, which if oh. you guys have been to Chuck E. Cheese recently, you get the card. Much like uh, the cas- casinos these days. Yes. Um, but, but how about those games where you do need a token? You swipe your card and a token spits out of the machine to use. You know, like the Whoa. little shoot where you roll it down. So Look you can that. still get nice new Chuck E. Cheese golden tokens. Cool. Does your does your daughter have a frequent players card by any chance? No, we get managed, any perks or free I, nights. As I told you, we, like we walk by it weekly and I've managed to only take her once because we tell her uh. to only for birthdays. So. Okay. <laughs> Well, I, I will throw this back over to uh, the last member of the podcast who's always with us from, well, the last I'm introducing tonight. Brian gave me a look there. But Mr. Brian P. Miles, the other only other man who may know that before Chuck E. Cheese, there was showbiz pizza in our area growing up. Greetings and salutations from the city of brotherly love where we had Chuck E. Cheese. We didn't. I know. I know. I know. No, I know showbiz pizza existed. And I want to okay. say there was one in the great northeast northeast philadelphia hmm. but but around me uh we had chuck e cheese out here in east nart in pennsylvania in the north town plaza shopping center and my mother took me there with a friend for my 10th birthday which was my first birthday celebrated out here and i remember that it was one of the cool chuck e cheeses that had the cheese factory play play area which <laughs> what does that mean you, there was the the coolest and you can find entire brochures now online about it but it was uh it predated the play places that they have at like mcdonald's and stuff and this was an entire um what i later learned from these brochures on the internet now where it was like a seven piece unit that was like assembled together uh to make this like you you went in no parents were inside you 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 went through the door it was kid sized and you could just run through that thing and there were obstacles and ball pits and all kinds okay. of other stuff it was so cool and 
that Chuck E. Cheese didn't last, man. I remember like by the time I was old enough that my friends were driving a few years later, that Chuck E. Cheese was gone. Like it didn't survive. But we have another mm. we have another one here that just closed not far away. But oh, this really? is not the Chuck E. Cheese podcast. <laughs> no, it is not. So not welcome everybody. But we are gonna reference Chuck E. Cheese tonight. Yep. And uh I am back from Florida where I visited with Hal and a uh numerous podcast listeners and disney friends uh and i can't wait for the winter to be over yeah you missed the vortex i, I what did was miss, your line i, I did <laughs> I miss the polar vortex it. i wouldn't say i missed it that's I, that's what i said to you at the time yes it's, that's right you timed my, that perfectly that, my that my trip. my niece veronica says every year it snows when you go away and i said that's because god loves me <laughs> <laughs> And I said, the solution to that is to go away when I go away, to come with me, and then you will miss the bad weather up here. Well, it is snowing tonight uh, as behind me, as you guys probably can't see, but I guarantee you it is a couple inches on the ground. Uh, I think we've, we're in, hopefully we, you guys won't lose me here with electricity problems, but I think we'll be all right for the evening. So, is the generator we, gassed up? It's ready to go. If we need an emergency. Flip the switch, Todd. Yeah, we'll take care of it. So. All right, well, let's get to a, a couple corrections and comments from um, from last month. Um, we had this, this is from Duskin. Um, he wrote into us regarding Snow White's scary adventure, which we talked about last, uh, last month. And uh, he says, as the story goes, my family hopped on the ride and we were whisked through all the terrors of the evil queen popping out at every corner. In the end, I came off my first ever Disney ride crying and screaming in terror. Uh, we have a great picture of me crying that has been forever pre- uh, preserved in the scrapbook for all my family to enjoy. So uh, he says, after listening to the podcast, I can't imagine what my reaction would have been if I had experienced the early iterations of the ride. So this must, <laughs> must wow, have been later, the... later on. Oh, it was the first ever visit in, in 2000. So, wow. You know, holy yeah. cow. <laughs> uh, he has a lifelong love, uh, love of Disney. And uh, so I appreciate uh, Duskin for, for writing in. And yeah, see, look at that, how it was... It was even scary later on. You know what? It's maybe it's like Bird Box. Maybe it's whatever you were frightened of was there in the Snow White Adventures for you to to see. (laughs) That's right. right. Somebody has to pry your eyes open. Yep. 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 Now, on the topic of the Snow White Dwarf, uh, how you had a correction, actually, uh, regarding some of the figures. I do. Brian actually brought this to my attention, I think, as we were wrapping up last time. So I I did. I I was listening to the playback. Oh, that's right. So I'm listening. You talked about that. And I'm like, boy, that that, that seems to contradict what what he said 10 minutes earlier. Yeah. So so just to be clear, what what I said was that it, it was my belief that the figures that appeared in Snow White's Scary Adventures when it was redone of the dwarfs in dancing were from the actual Mickey Mouse review uh, from Tokyo and brought back to uh, the United States. And that is in fact not true because in 1992, when they opened up Euro Disneyland, they went to those original sculpts and made duplicates of them for uh, Disneyland Paris and put them in the ride. And then when they did our version uh, again, they actually went back and made more duplicates of those, and the original ones continued to play in Tokyo until 2008. So um, I was absolutely 100% uh, incorrect on that. Um, they were from the original and that they were sculpted for it, but but they were in fact duplicates. And then Brian and I had the pleasure of riding uh, the new Seven Dwarfs Mine Train together, which I had never done. So I finally got to see the figures on that. 
And yes, the uh, the two vultures are on the lift are from the uh, Florida attraction. They don't move. I don't know if they were supposed to move, but they didn't move when we were on it. Uh, they just kind of sat there with their heads <laughs> sideways. Uh, and then at the end, when you come into the station, it's the dwarfs that are playing the instruments. Are those same instrument? Are those same figures that were taken from the attraction, with the exception of Sleeping Beauty? And Dopey and whoever Dopey is standing on. Uh, those uh, don't, I mean, they're kind of in the same positions as the ones from the previous, but they're totally new figures. They're posed in different ways. And I'm not sure, but it looks to me like the witch is a nicer sculpt, too, that's standing outside the door. So... And you also noted that the animals sitting on the on inside the house on the chair were from Snow White's Scary Adventures. Yes, yes, they still have that same sort of like frightened look on their face, even though they should. They're perfectly enjoying what's going on, I guess, yeah. un <laughs> unless they're aware that the witch is behind the door that no one else can see. I'm not sure. So you'd never ridden that until like last week. <laughs> yeah, that was my first time. Wow. Yeah. Wow, you held out long. <laughs> well, I had, I want to say like three years ago, we had fast passes for like nine in the morning or something. And there was, we couldn't make it. <laughs> there was no way we could make it even from the contemporary <laughs> over to there. Get off more than you could Yeah, chew. fast enough with, yeah, so with a gaggle of kids. That was the kids. first thing. So, so I'll give you the, the, the short version of my $1,000 excursion with Hal. Uh, he was like, Hey, I'm, my last day in Florida, he's like, Hey, we got to run some errands in Orlando. And I'm like, all right, I'll go with you. So we made some pit stops, uh, along the way to pick stuff up and drop stuff off to people. And Pies. he said, you know, he said, Hey, I have my annual pass with me. And I said, well, I was not planning to go to the parks on this trip. Uh, I hadn't worked that into my schedule. So I actually, for the first time in years, my magic band used to travel with me everywhere with my admission media, my non-expiring admission media uh, that I use for a one-off trip here and there to, to go into the parks. And I mean, it's gone to Europe with me for no reason and California with me for no reason. <laughs> but on this trip, I had actually taken all that stuff out. Uh, so I ended up buying an annual pass. Uh, to, 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 just well, knowing that we plan to do an event, uh, sure. in the fall, uh, unannounced as of yet, and knowing that I would be back for Memorial day weekend. And now that the prices have continued to go up, the actual math used to be 12 days. If you were going to go 12 days or more during the year, mm. it made sense to buy an annual pass. That new calculator is down to like nine or ten days now, based on oh. the admission price. Nice. So, so uh, yeah. So I have an annual pass. So there we go. Thanks, Hal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I do. I do have something for you though. Actually, I wanted to. Uh, I understand you had a loss on this trip, so I have. Um, I'm. I'm putting a video here. Uh, it's in Trello, but I'm gonna let me post it here in our in our group chat, and. Um, I understand you, you you had a great loss, so I figure the only way that we could pros possibly commemorate that, or at least mourn it in a way, is the 1980s Disney Channel Around the World Walt Disney World hats to say goodbye oh. to the hat that you lost. Um, this is uh, this is like losing uh, Indiana Jones's it, fedora. It is. Like it's it like is. a, a well. A just to clarify, just to clarify, this was not the hat 
that has been with me on all of my previous trips. Well, that's good to know. This was a second hat that was far more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, not good that, to know. That my uh, that my friend gave to me, um, and the like. The other hat was a. I mean, I remember when I bought it, but I would literally shove it into suitcases and crush it during, like, for trips, and then just like uncrush it when I would get to Florida or. I, like, I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't care about it, but it's just kind of become like, it's the hat I throw on because it's good in Florida. This was like a nice hat. I was doing this whole like Florida Stanley thing for the week while I was driving all over Florida. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll bring the nice hat and wear, and you saw the pictures well, from my trip. It was great. But yeah, the hat, I, the hat left me somewhere between the rental car and Fort Lauderdale security or uh, Tampa airport security. I think I, I left it in the rental car. Uh, they have not responded to my lost and found claim. I can't imagine where else I would have put it down. I know I wore it out of the hotel that morning. I think and by I did the time it though, go, go to one ten in the video, go to <laughs> one ten. I'm, I'm going. Okay. And uh, I believe that, that that could be it. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. We'll have to, we'll have to add a screen grab. Uh, so, exactly. people know what, so people know what we're talking about, but that's right. So, well, I, I'm sorry to hear that, Brian, hopefully it will make a safe journey back North for you. All right. Well, JT, let's continue on with some of the, uh, listener mail. You, I don't know if you got a little snow, but did you run out to the mailbag? We've had a lot of different things coming in and, uh, what do we got this month? I did. We had uh, the vortex, the mail. I don't know if it did where you were. The mail actually stopped. We had two days of no mail service here, so we had some delayed yeah. mailbag. They did not stop it here. It was rather cold. I was actually, during the vortex, a part of it. I was down in Washington, D.C., so I got got away from it. Just Gotcha. Well, um, okay, so here we go. We had some good mail this month, lots of uh, good responses to the last episode. A um, couple good ones here, though, to go by, and we had some stuff sent to us, so let me bang these out here. First one's from Thomas Lane in New Hampshire by you. Uh, yeah. Maybe a very broad question, but I've been wondering, and this is sort of a, I'd say we could do a, a, a once-around or a round-robin style, what's the ho- holy grail of Disney, Walt Disney World memorabilia? The one thing that we know exists but is either out of hands or in a collector's hands could be actual memorabilia or a ride part or whatnot uh he wants to know something that is a holy grail of paraphernalia memorabilia what do you guys got well a big shout out to tom up at the mount washington cog railway thanks for writing in he's a big fan of ours so. oh, okay yeah and they're celebrating 150th anniversary this year so uh, if you guys are anybody's in the area head up there to new hampshire and check that out so tom i've got one for you and i'm sad to say i missed purchasing this one i should have just bid higher but it was one of the original 16 uh walt disney world logo tiles that adorned the preview center um and that was up there were a couple of them up for uh they come up for ebay now and then i do know somebody who has one i'm hoping that he will part with one one day for me that is kind of a holy grail because it's one of the first first things that you know it's not souvenir memorabilia in a way but it is a, a very very early part of walt disney world history if i had to go souvenir you know i think a lot of people think back to the 1971 license plates the green and blue ones which we've which we've talked about so how what do you got <clears throat> let's see boy that's a tough one you know i, I think people really like the uh those epcot center 
uh, 35 millimeter camera straps. Oh yeah, those those are kind of out there, but they're kind of expensive. That's a that's a really very good, very expensive. Yeah, what do they go for? About six between sixty and a hundred dollars when you wow. see them. Wow. You can you hook it up? Can you carry your cell phone around your chest with it if you hook it up? So I got to I got to tell you, my friend Katie uh, actually wore one as a belt to Epcot 30. Oh, yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, I'm gonna jump in. Yeah, go ahead. So so for me, because I don't think park artifacts really can qualify, um, but uh, the globe that we mm. originally thought was just for travel agents, but was actually sold in the gift shops that uh, has the Disney branding on it. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a world globe sure. uh, that has the, what, I guess the magic, the, the Disney D where, where the magic kingdom is located in Florida. Right. I think. Right. The, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that would be very cool to have. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your your holy grails. Uh, so, Tom, appreciate the message. Next up, Jake Nelson. He says, hey, guys, I've been binge listening to all your episodes, and I'm almost caught up. Just listened to your episode on Dreamflight, and you mentioned that the swirling light effect is still being used by Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin. I was surprised that you didn't mention that the trip of startled chickens from the barnstormer scene are also still used in the attraction appearance unchanged so what do you guys think about i know we shared some pictures back and forth what's the uh the uh, are the chickens still there (laughs) so actually i i questioned him because i i was not aware of this and uh he found a picture and sent it to me and yeah it's like these three you know plywood (laughs) cut out chickens are still (laughs) Hanging out, hiding, hiding in the scene. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool, though. Yeah, so that's it. We'll we'll have to we'll add the photo to that. It's one of the really neat, neat things uh, that's been left over. So that's nice. I I did know that that I honestly did not know that that was there, and I think it's so cool that they left a little piece in there. So yep. yay, nice job, that's engineers. Right. <laughs> you go. didn't pull the speed tunnel down, and you gave us chickens. Yeah, you know, there's something about chickens being retained, though. Right, we had the world of motion chickens that appeared at Goofy's barn. So we got these chickens. There was some other chicken. Every, everybody likes chickens. Man. Yeah. yeah, and you got sentinel chickens, and oh, they're man, they're it's... appealing to the to the millennials, all those weirdos who now have them in their backyard. <laughs> Apologies to the four listeners who have chickens in their backyard. Okay, a couple more quick ones here. Uh, first one is from David Falhaber. Falhaber. Uh, David sent us some pretty good audio recordings, and we're gonna sort of uh, pepper them in through various articles and. Uh, episodes and things, but I wanted to mention one of the coolest ones was uh, River Country Audio. It's actually from uh, one of the slides there, and it's like the whole like warning spiel. So you'd be standing there, you know, kind of drenched, getting ready to wait on, wait for your next turn on the slide, and this is what the uh, the audio would sound like. Howdy, folks, and welcome to Whoop and Holler Holler. Now, the water below us is up to six feet deep and has a strong current. Only experienced swimmers should go down the slide. Please enter the slide one person at a time, feet first, and sitting down. Before you go down, wait until the person ahead of you has passed the orange flag at the first bend. And please, for your safety, swim away from the slide immediately after entering the water. Thank you. So, uh, David, thank you for the rare audio. We'll continue to share that, like I said, in uh, various videos. Uh, uh, episodes and, and articles so it's very cool stuff though 
Uh, next up, Jerry Massey. Jerry sent us a VHS tape from 1994, which was the first year for the Disney Marathon. And it's like a commemorative VHS in the plastic case. Uh, pretty cool. It's about 10, 15 minutes long. So we're going to uh, rip that, save that, and uh, post it on our YouTube channel just so everybody can see that. It's a pretty neat video. It's definitely a, a scaled-down version of the marathon when you compare it to today. But there are some some rarer, older gems on there. And I was, I was talking to everybody as I was watching it or just sending them screen grabs and viking goofy was on in the the family fun run which i was like wow i wonder if that was the last time he was out before our event in 1994 but um so viking goofy made the appearance there next couple here we have uh this one is from joe barlow Joe says, there are several great arcades on property, and this totally relates to our uh, our episode, obviously. There are several great uh, arcades on property back in the 70s and 80s. Pioneer Hall's original arcade where Crockett's Tavern is now, the arcade at the Hilton on Hotel Plaza Boulevard, and the Penny Arcade at Magic Kingdom. But when you walked into the contemporary lobby from the front door, you just got off the blue flag boat from Fort Wilderness and came in the back doors, you would hear air pocky hucks making that familiar sound echoing in the lobby, and you just had to go in. Uh, there's always a great selection of games with multiples of each. And, of course, Joe's talking about the Fiesta Fun Center. So that was a great little uh, walk down memory lane from Joe. We thank you for that uh, the clicking of the air hockey sound, which I don't know if they have air hockey upstairs anymore. I don't think they do. So I, don't, I think the sounds of air hockey are gone from the contemporary. Yeah, air hockey takes up a lot of landscape. So It does for, yeah. Although they do have it at the uh, some of the value hotels we've played just for fun there they still have it especially the one where it shoots out like 18 pucks at once uh all right so this one is from andrew Tofoli, and i i posed this question how you're the the only one to to not answer todd i don't know if we really heard from you so andrew says and he he's talking about the uh fiesta fun center some various different things uh he says that uh Checking in used to take forever at the Contemporary, and he vividly remembers the shooting gallery is a great warm-up to the Magic Kingdom. So what jumped out at me at that is how long it used to take to check in. I was telling the fellas that we, I remember we'd pull into Fort Wilderness, we'd been driving all day, and it felt like I was in that parking lot or that lobby for hours. Now, I don't know if it was my parents <laughs> adjusting the site, you know, show me the, the nature around it, give us a better spot closer to a bus stop. I really don't know, but... It's funny that the Contemporary took forever, Fort Wilderness took forever. Is there any reason for the long check-ins? Did it happen at Poly? Well, you know, I checked into Polynesian a couple times, and, and we also checked into Treehouse. Now, I don't remember checking the Treehouse or the uh, the Club Villas, I think, where we stayed as well. Um do I need to make a joke here, Todd? Yes, because yes, gold you key. do. I think, I think what you did is you rode the actual uh, uh, steamer trunk from the video. They, yeah. they just gave it to you for that. Yeah, Roy, you right Roy, to your door. Roy Disney picked him up at the airport. And, you no. didn't let me finish. You didn't let me finish. <laughs> he threw lobster out the window just because he's in the way. I, I, I do remember standing in line with my grandfather for a couple of the check-ins, and I remember the dot matrix printers printing out your resort identification card, them taking, um, you know, your credit card impression, looked up your credit card number. Sometimes they would keep an actual physical mm. books before the day, uh, you know, that you could actually authorize a credit card. They actually used to hold books behind the counter, look them up that had fraudulent as well as expired cards. I think the swiftness that we're used to today 
um, along with just being a child and, and that whole time seeming that it takes forever. But then you couple that with just the technology back then of organizing, finding a key, uh, and all that stuff. But you know what? Even still to this day, any type of reservation you have, whether it's, you know, a, a flight, a hotel, or especially a rental car, they're always typing and they're always checking you in. So it's <laughs> it's always been an arduous process, no matter what, um, to check in. But I don't know what do you, what what thoughts do you guys have? I agree. Uh, I it is it is efficient now with the Magic Band. You know, you you walk oh, right sure. up and, and you you don't even have to go to the front desk. But <clears throat> back then it felt forever. You're right. It was, and I think to add the fact that hey, we're going to Disney World. Your first thought is we're pulling oh, up pumped. to the, the the Magic yeah. Kingdom is where we're yeah. going. No, 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 you're no. We're going to the reception outpost at Fort Wilderness. Son. That's <laughs> where we're going. That's well, right. plus, wouldn't That's they have right, to go yeah. back and find like the physical key with the room number on it? Yes, absolutely. Or like a piece of paper from months ago when yeah. you scheduled. And later on, they had the Ving cards. If you remember those, yeah. this with was little... before the slide cards. It would have holes in it. And yeah, they, they look like, have to punch like it. Fred Flintstone's time card. Yes. <laughs> yes, we have we we have one scanned. Hold on, we we have one scanned. I'll get yeah. you get, yeah. get it here for you guys. Um, but the the Ving card was a was a big change to that that they didn't have to find your actual room key and at, um, at what point did they have you stop signing into the register because i remember that <laughs> where you'd actually like write you know hand write in your name like oh we're I the bowers family visiting from such and such a place you'd write your name and address right. in like the ledger book that no you stayed kidding. there yeah and that's how like yeah if you were like when walt disney and people traveled they'd like travel under See this thing because you would pay with you could pay with cash for the hotel, so you could write any name that you wanted to into the ledger. There were you know no one was checking your credit cards or ID. It's like oh you are Mr. Johnson, so you just yeah you wrote that in and you paid him cash for the hotel room and there were no questions asked. That's right. I'd yep. say if you want to know what we're talking about at all, my quickest reference is Psycho when they look at the ledger book, you know, and they look at see who was in there before you know and talking to Norman Bates. That's the. <laughs> Like I see, she was here this day, uh, Norman. Uh, what's this all about? And he's just yep. explain it. I but, just sent you guys a picture of the Ving card, so we'll. we'll oh, it's got Mickey's finger. Cool. Look at it's that. Got Mickey's yeah, finger. You, you put put Mickey's finger in the door, and the magic open unlocks. All right, so uh, Andrew, appreciate that uh, walk down memory lane there for me. That definitely uh, brought back the the memories of waiting and checking in. So. Lots of great listener mail. We have a lot, a lot more to, to come uh, in the next episode. We, we keep saving it. We, we definitely refer back. Sometimes it makes it onto a future episode. So to write to us, podcast at retrowdw.com. Send us a Facebook message, uh, website contact, uh, social media message, anywhere. Email us. We'll, we'll get it, and we'll potentially put you on the show. All right, well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind and uh, how we sent this out to you this month in order to pick one, because I guess I was a little too obscure last month with uh, Worlds Away and Pablo Cruz. So uh, you did come back with one that was definitely uh, much more recognizable, and uh, we did did get quite a few more entries. So let's take a listen to last month's Audio Rewind. All right, well, how? why don't you tell the listeners what the answer was. well i wanted to make it a little tricky because it's not something that you can hear in the parks today but it was it yep. was from the enchanted tiki room aka the tropical serenade and it was from the offenbach the very end of the offenbach number which has now been cut from the show but if you there if you go. saw the original you've heard it many 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 times 
We had a lot of people write in and say that it was let's mm. sing like the birdies thing, which was interesting. So it's only there. But we do have a winner. Congratulations to Scott Chapin. And he'll be receiving one of the retro WDW at Lake Buena Vista Historical Society posters that Jason drew up for us. So we'll be sending that out to you. And uh, you'll have a chance to win one if you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind. All right, if you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to contest at retrowdw.com. All entries must be received by March 12th, 2019. We'll pick a random winner from all correct entries, and we hope to see your entry in soon. All right, well, it's time for the main topic. As we said at the beginning of the, of the podcast here, we're going to be talking about the arcades, and specifically, we're going to take you back to the Penny Arcade in Main Street, USA, as well as the Fiesta Fun Center in the Contemporary Resort. So how and Brian have been scouring research papers, uh, visiting libraries. Uh, I, I believe Howe has about six inches of microfiche next to his desk that he's been going through. Um, so I, I turn, Howe, let's, let's start in, uh, in the Magic Kingdom, and then we'll, we'll go over, the, we'll take a monorail ride over the Contemporary Resort. And um, let's talk a little bit about the Penny Arcade. And, um, you know, I, I have an opening here, our trusty Burnbaum, as always. I always love referencing him. It says, Scarcely a motel in Orlando lacks its blipping, bleeping, squeaking room full of electronic games. And uh, says the Magic Kingdom also has its game room. But here on Victorian Main Street, in addition to the modern machines, there's authentic old time games. I always think of the uh, from the guidebooks. Uh, and, and I have I have a like I have a Polaroid guidebook, so it's a mid seventies. But it, it always had the same description on it for the Penny Arcade: a room full of fun for a penny, nickel, dime, or quarter. And so, 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 how you said a, a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter? So, just you know, with the inflation calculator, it would be <laughs> six cents for the penny. Okay, uh, today it would be sixty three cents for the dime and a whopping dollar fifty seven for the quarter. So, it gives you an idea. And and actually, you know what? There are arcade games that are buck to two bucks so i think that's uh about appropriate yeah, that's that's true but you know a lot of the a lot of the it's funny the games that were or the things that were a penny it's like have continued to stay a penny that's true somehow in infl- the old on the older arcade games inflation hasn't come in as much as uh in the new ones for that's some right. reason yeah it was uh and it's true it's like and actually another <laughs> another thing is like people actually used to walk around with pocket change <laughs> <laughs> Like in their pockets, which nobody does today because everybody uses ATM cards and Apple Pay and Google Pay and whatever. So uh, at the end of the day, you'd be walking through, you know, the park and you're like, well, I got, you know, I got some change here that I can I can get rid of. Maybe I'll stop in the arcade. Right, right. So today, if you walk up Main Street uh, past the, well, like there's not even a center street anymore. It's like past the. Well, there's uh, one. One of the center streets is still there. Yeah, past the mega. I was, but on on this side of the street, it's just like the Emporium Mega Complex. So if you walk up Main Street today, uh, past the Emporium Megaplex, uh, on your left hand side, you will see a uh, a green awning that says the Main Street Fashion Apparel Company. Um, and inside of that uh, didn't used to be clothing. It, it used to be the Penny Arcade on Main Street. Uh, and slightly before that, it was the Hall of Champions when when it was a different store. But 
Um, if you go and if you stand in front of that today, uh, back in 1971, that was uh, the arcade, uh, an actual penny arcade that existed on Main Street as part of things like the movie theater to give you a feeling of what it was like, you know, during that turn of the century. Uh, and one of the, you knew that you were at the penny arcade because out front was a fortune telling machine. Uh, now you probably, the kind of fortune telling machine, it's like, if you haven't seen one in real life, if you've ever seen the movie big, uh, it was kind of similar to that idea where there was a figure, you know, kind of in a glass box. Yeah. Zoltar. <laughs> uh, but in, in Disneyland, there's one named Esmeralda. Uh, but this wasn't Esmeralda. This was, uh, she still was a gypsy style with curly black hair and red satin shirt and layers of necklaces. Um, you'd walk up and you'd put a quarter into the slot and her hand would move back and forth across these fan playing cards. All hearts arranged from uh, two to ace. And then the machine would spit out a little card that said grandmother's prophecy on the top. Uh, and as it turns out, I was like thinking about this. I'm like, well, why was it playing cards? You'd think that they'd use tarot cards or something to tell fortunes. Well, actually, uh, mm. the art of, of fortune telling from cards is called cardomancy. And actually, standard playing cards was the most popular form of fortune telling uh, during readings in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. So it's actually like a real historical thing. And the different suits and the different card values... Like, you know, the numbers would have different meanings. So when you combined the numbers yep. and the the hearts and, you know, or spades or whatever, it's like then you could read somebody's fortune that way. So I was like, hey, that's a that's a nice touch to uh, to the real thing. So um, that is that is that is pretty cool. But I will say, how yes, she still creeped me. out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was creeped. I did not like. Well, I don't like mannequins and things <laughs> like that in general, but uh, <laughs> it's, it creeped me. Yeah. Out. And there were about. Uh, I think about 12, I think there were a dozen cards in total that you could get from it. I actually have a complete collection, which I left in the, <laughs> left in the garage. I was going to, but here's one. Uh, so this is a typical of what you would get for your quarter. Uh, at the top, it said grandmother's prophecies. And there'd be like this little kind of like 1930s illustration. Uh, and this one I'm looking at has a picture of a, a devil. And then this guy with a cigarette kind of like giving him the the talk to the hand move, which I didn't know was from the 1930s, but apparently so. So this, this is what you would get. So the devil has been hounding you and giving you restless days and sleepless nights? Well, all this will soon be a thing of the past. A new turn of events will soon come about. A happy reunion with a loved one will make life all that you ever wanted it or dreamed it to be. You have a very trusting nature and are easily taken in by so-called friends. Do not be so anxious to do favors unto others, as there is one who is just waiting to take advantage of your good nature. Beware, beware of the number seven, unless you want a one-way ticket to heaven. Drop another coin Whoa. in the slot, and I will tell you more. Your lucky numbers. <laughs> oh, I like that. 5, 42, 43, 33, 32, 35. <laughs> and these were all... I'm going to play those. I'm going to play those tonight. Yeah, let's, let's do you that. Get your, get your lotto number going. And then right. down at the bottom, uh, there would be a copyright. And it was copyright 1994, Mike Moonves, and M-U-N-V-E-S Corporation, New York. And as it turns out, the Mike Moonves Corporation was actually in the business of selling uh, arcade-style games uh, to arcades and things and and had since the uh the early 1900s so this is an absolutely appropriate uh object to have in that arcade uh in fact they were one of the original distributors of uh, mutoscopes which which we will also talk about so mm -hmm. uh and and speaking of which directly behind 
this grandmother, uh, well, she wasn't really growing there. She was a gypsy, but she was a grandmother's prophecy model. Apparently, you could get them with like different stylings. Uh, were a bunch of mutoscopes. Now, <clears throat> mutoscopes. Uh, there's still four of these that are up in the Main Street uh, railroad station. So you may have seen these. Uh, they're basically, and there's two at the boardwalk, although those ones didn't actually right. appear um, inside of this arcade. They're separate or perhaps muted, but mut- mutated, but we'll get into that. Um, so a mutoscope was uh, a device. Inside of it was, if you can think of, and again, boy, I'll date myself here. If you've ever a seen Rolodex. a Rolodex of cards, <laughs> which Rolodex like nobody has, uh, <clears throat> picture a disc in the center that could turn. And then imagine a bunch of like three by five cards basically attached to the disc. So that way, uh, if you were standing in front of it and rotated it, the cards would go past you. Well, imagine a, a paddle wheel. Yeah, that's a cards. very good way to put it. So in inside yeah. of this machine was basically like a little pin that would hold on to the index card. And then uh, you would put in your penny and a light would turn on and then you would turn a crank and the little pin would just release momentarily so that way the next as you turn the crank and turn this disc of cards like the next card would like hit the pin and and freeze for a second and then it would fall out of place and the next card would hit and what this did was used uh, your eyes your mind's persistence of vision to hold the image momentarily while the next card came into place and you would have the illusion of a of a motion picture so um the the movies that were inside of these mutoscopes were often taken from silent films uh, and, you know, cut down to like one minute segments, which is about how long it lasts. Sometimes they were original, uh, but uh, typically it seems like they were just like shots from other things. And um, I happened to take some pictures in the Main Street Arcade uh, right before it closed because I knew it was on its way out. Uh, so I actually have the names of all of the... Uh, the mutoscopes that were in operation, like up at the end. So uh, these are the exciting titles that you could have experienced. Uh, Fast Getaway, Narrow Escape, uh, Play Cowboy Rodeo Time, and Charlie Chaplin in The Old Dentist, uh, Shoot Shoot Fly, uh, which that one was about. I remember this was about a uh, like a guy with a gun and a fly was buzzing around him and he comedically, you know, tries to shoot the fly with a pistol. Uh, expecting William Charte. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, ben Turpin Golf. I, I found out Ben Turpin was a cross-eyed comedian, so you can imagine how funny that must have been. Uh, Sharpshooting Sims, Knockout, which was a boxing one. Uh, Charlie Chaplin in Keystone Capers. Rider Untrained, which was uh, a bunch of stunt gags uh, involving trains. Uh, Dolores Costello, the actress in Old San Francisco, which is apparently like a very classic uh, silent film. So how I've I've got a list here that differs, and also some of those were actually on kaleidoscopes. Oh well, no, which uh, well they couldn't have been because these were these are literally all in the things, and the the last one was called Burlesque Bouncer. But no, tell me tell me what you have because I'm I'm curious to hear the list okay. that you procured. So on the Kaleidoscopes, I have, yes, we have no bananas, tough competition, Texas Rangers, run out of town, watermelon patch, a uh, raid on a watermelon patch, Bridget on a bike, um, Captain Kid's treasure, as well as expecting a knockout. Okay. Now I'm t- those were Kaleidoscopes. Now those are 
basically stereoscopes that moved. So there were two lenses, and so it gave you that 3D right. effect. And they were automatic, too. Yes, yeah. Now, it's funny. So, it's like, I can't remember those in the arcade for some reason. I don't know if they got pulled earlier. So this is 86 Burn Bomb, where I'm pulling this. Oh, uh, okay. So that's, okay, so eighty. So 86. So maybe by the time I was really frequenting it yeah. in the 90s, like those machines might have been pulled. I, d- I do have a synopsis of some of the films, too. If you oh, like to yeah. Know. I'd love yeah. to hear that. So, uh, yes, we have no bananas. Uh, a suitor slips on a banana peel and is ridiculed. Run out of town, which one unfortunate man has paint dumped on him, falls into a manhole, is knocked over by a car, sits on freshly painted bench, and knocks over a paint bucket. Mm. And uh, during a raid on Watermelon Patch, two fellows do and are discovered. And uh, Bridget on a bike shows a real sourpuss taking a tumble, and it should be subtitled, or the, or the Trials of Riding in a Long Skirt. Um, what was interesting is that Knockout was actually a documentary on uh, Joe Lewis and German fighter Max Schmeling. Oh, that so one makes sense. Interesting. So a little yeah. bit of, of of news there. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's funny. It's, it does mention Captain Kidd's treasure, in which a pirate lass shows knees, bare arms, and ankles. The display of skin, which would have rated a solid G today, must have looked risque three quarters of a century ago. Oh my! Well, you know, this was all pre uh, pre code, as they say. So, That's right. you know, there was a lot of actually in a lot of these arcade things back then, there was some there was some you could get like little cards with nudity on it and stuff. So this is not completely not not, not a Disney, but like I, the, I think Uncle Orville may have been frequenting yeah. the, the, the mutoscopes and telescopes. That's right. When he was reading the Police Gazette, which which was also mm-hmm. basically like a girly magazine with some <clears throat> some actual like police sort of like blotter type news in it, too. That's right. So um, now out of those, um, you can actually still see the Burlesque Bouncer, Play Cowboy, uh, Rider, and Rider Untrained. I think there's one other one. Oh, and the um, Dolores Costello in Old San Francisco. Those are still in the Main Street Station. Uh, The last time I tried, uh, they weren't working for me at all. But Mm -hmm. I have seen other people have success with them. So, you know, it's it's drop your penny in and see if you have luck (laughs) or or not viewing these. And even if you're not at Disney, if you if you see one of these, give them a whirl. You know, for for the like house said, just a couple cents. Give it a try and see what you can see because they really are uh, a tip back to the old days before there was any projection means. Um, how do we know from the history? Did they ever update these from a newsreel perspective or anything like that, or was it always just comedy and slapstick and, and little vignettes? Oh, there was a, there was a variety of ones available. You could get sporting events, you could get news stuff. Mm. Uh, it was really up to uh, you know the operator. Uh, so so once right. once you you know bought the machine and put it in your you know place of business, uh, right. you could you could order you know more of them. Uh, so you'd basically get like a new reel and then a new card that you would put up in the, so up in the top of these, uh, where the titles are, it's kind of like a replaceable art area. So right, they right, probably yeah. give you something to replace there and, and you'd, you know, you would, uh, have a new thing to showcase. I don't know about you, but I am, I'm waiting to watch Super Bowl 53, uh, about six <laughs> months it's coming, I believe on, 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 yeah, on so yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to see the highlights. <laughs> that's fast that would be fascinating <laughs> so um so there's there's two mutoscopes at the boardwalk too uh and jim corcus the disney historian actually talks about how when the arcade closed down uh, which we'll get to uh they stored all of these um 
mutoscopes underneath the castle in some kind of dank room. And when he was looking to, when he was called on to put the Disney Institute together, he got to go in and uh, he, he thought that would be a nice way to teach animation since it's actually like frame by frame. So he was able to pick out uh, two machines in really good condition and uh, he went to the person to, you know, get it all set up and get these fixed up. And he said, oh, what, what reels do you want? And he went to a closet that was full of reels and wow. he picked out uh, two that are there now, Cat in the Bag, which is a Felix the Cat cartoon and uh, W.C. Fields in The Golfer. So uh, those that may be the metal shells that were in uh, mm-hmm. that were in there. But the mo- these two movies that are currently at the boardwalk did not actually run in the arcade on Main Street. So. Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat. Whenever he gets in a fix, he reaches into his bag of tricks. Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat. You laugh so much, your sides will ache, your heart will go fit a bad watch. And Felix the wonderful cat. Uh, and then uh, there were a bunch of other machines in there too. Uh, there was uh, another one that's actually was in the arcade that is in the uh, the train station now is a Chester Pollard play football game, which uh, dates Chester from the Cobblepot. 19th... Yeah, <laughs> Chester <laughs> Copperpot. That's right. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, Brian. You said which Cobblepot one? like Batman I did. Returns. I did because yeah. we were Cobblepot, talking because we had a twenty-five minute discussion about Batman before the podcast started. But Oswald Cobblepot. Yes, was it his name, Oswald? Yes, it was. Yeah. Oswald for mayor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and and with this game, I th- you put in a... I think that one probably was in... I can't remember if that was a penny or a nickel. But uh, I think it's these little metal figures. It's all made out of sheet metal and like uh, cast iron. And it would knock a, a ball back and forth. Um, so you can pl- still try to play that one today. There was a grandfather clock strength tester. So that's one of those things... Or actually, that was like a... You'd hold on to it. And I think it would put like an electric current through. And the trick was to see like how long you could stay on. So actually we had, we had one of our listeners tweet earlier that he would challenge his brother to it and beat him every time. So, yeah. Um, and it literally was this like wooden box with a clock face in it. And these two things that you would hold on to. Um, there was a lighthouse grip test. So you would like squeeze these physical, like, like a grip to it together. You would, almost like a, it was Two almost handles. like a, a lever, a, yeah, or like, a lever for the uh, for, for like the cable car. You know, when they grip the lever, right, the right, right. Forward is, yeah, yeah. So you'd grip out, grip that and hold onto it, and then it would like progressively light up these little boxes uh, that would go to the top to show you like how strong you were. Um, there was a very strange automation, and uh, an automation is a sort of like a mechanical figure that does something. Uh, Automaton. Yeah. Uh, yes. Thank you. So so. Uh, you know, the real famous ones were like the Turk that could play chess, uh, which actually turned out to be like a fake. There was like a chess master like hiding underneath it, underneath the mechanical Turk, moving all the chess pieces. But the one that they had, it was this man holding a pig on his lap. And he had the guy had like a piece of food in his hand. So he would move the food close to the pig's face like he was going to feed the pig. And then... He would pull it away and the pig would get angry and like move around a little bit. And then like the man would like laugh. And I don't think there was any audio, but like you could see like he's the physical, physical contortions of him laughing. It was very, and that's all it did. 
<laughs> just like tease the pig man laughs tease the pig man laughs shove your pennies in uh but that was there for a long time there was one of those love testers so it's like you would hold on the thing and it would like light up uh as it went uh there were like uh incandescent bulbs that would go up a uh, up a display and uh, i have a picture of one here i'm trying to bring up so it could tell you like what the what the things say like i remember one of them was like hot stuff oh here we go yeah so you would you ranged from uh from from worst to best blah clammy harmless mild wild sexy burning passionate hot stuff and then finally uncontrollable <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> Oh, this is a fun one. So the massageomatic foot relaxer. <laughs> so this thing kind of looked like it was somewhere from somewhere between the 1930s and the 1950s. And uh, it was a red sort of like vinyl plastic seat that you would sit on. And then it had, uh, you'd put your feet down on these metal plates that are sort of like foot shaped and you put it in your quarter and then it would just like vibrate the heck out of them. They used to have those at uh, various theme parks, and I feel like I f- remember them at like a like a Cracker Barrel type restaurant. Oh, like it was sure. Like a barrel you'd sit on, and the foot thing would go crazy. Like you just put your feet on. It jiggled very, very aggressively. I yeah. remember as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of these games were. I mean these these were super typical games, and and this Mike Moonves company sold a lot of this stuff. So you know, you 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 at one point. I mean, growing up, I ended up seeing a lot of these things. Like you'd say, you'd stop at a Cracker Barrel or some kind of like old-fashioned, you know, roadside attraction, and they would have a bunch of these things. Um, Cedar Point and Geauga Lake by us, the two, you know, amusement parks had these two, the, the, the foot massage things. Like it was 50 cents or a quarter, and you'd sit there and get your feet shaken to death on it. Like it was supposed to make you feel better, and you got right. off scared. <laughs> so we've we've now explored just the first like 10 feet of, of the penny arcade mm-hmm. so let's let's go a little bit deeper so in the current store it's just kind of like a one big giant store but it, at this point uh, in time when you would walk into that facade there were there was a wall right on the right hand side so you'd be kind of like forced to go straight for a while so this section had all kinds of old-timey things uh, and then the room would kind of make this sort of 45 degree bend. And then you would start to get into some some more modern games. So uh, in this section, there were electromechanical baseball games. Uh, if you may have seen these in your life, basically uh, there'd be like a, it almost looked like a pinball machine. So there was like a back glass with numbers uh, that would show you your score. And then uh, instead of like, you know, the pinball stuff, uh, there was a baseball field under the glass, and in the back, there were sort of places where the ball would drop that would say, like, home run, single, double. Uh, there would be an actual baseball diamond on the uh, thing, and there would be little players. So when you would hit the ball, and it was a metal pinball that would come down, and then there was a plastic or metal bat that was on a little thing. So... It would, it would dispense the ball out of a flap in the center, come down towards you, and then you would hit a button to hit the ball with the bat, uh, and it would shoot, you know, go. Uh, and then there was also a lot of times a little display in the middle of a baseball diamond, and these little figures would, like, pop up 
these little flat metal guys and then actually run the bases. So if you got a double, it would move the character to like second base and have it sit there. And then when you hit it in, it would like continue around the base and, and go in. So there were, they had about six of these uh, and they had different names like major league, uh, big league and world series. Uh, now the interesting thing about this is uh, although the mechanics of the games were old, Disney actually built cap new cabinets for all these. And I don't know if the idea was, you know, maybe they were in bad condition when they acquired them. So they just needed new cabinets because they were falling apart. Uh, they made them all look the same. So that probably, you know, helped a little bit because they knew, you know, they could fit the spaces together. But it was interesting because you can see pictures. It's like they're all this kind of like 70s wood grain looking stuff. And then across the aisle from them, there were a number of rifle shooting games. So <clears throat> these didn't use... I don't think they used physical BBs. I think they're all done with like light. So <clears throat> there were targets. No, actually some of them did have, did shoot little things inside. That's right. There during the, this period of time, sort of in the sixties and seventies, there were a couple of different ways you could do target shooting games in, in these enclosed spaces. And, and one of them actually would shoot like little physical shots and knock stuff down. The other one's done with like lights. Um, but they, they had a number of those. And Brian, what is the name of the gentleman that owns these games now? His name is Randy Senna, uh, and he's got the machines in Wildwood, New Jersey. He's a former cast member who rescued them when Disney was uh, was selling them off. Uh, and actually, he gave an interview to our friend Todd Tucky uh, last year uh, and explained how these machines worked. And I think we should probably share that with everybody. When they started putting the Magic Kingdom together for the opening of uh, Walt Disney World in 1971 for October 1st, they started with the Penny Arcade, and they had in the beginning the clamshell Franklin Uniscopes and the right. stereoscopes. They had the Penny machines in the very beginning at the Penny Arcade. They also had electromechanical games further in the back. Your gun games, your baseball games were very, very popular. Well, their mechanics were unable to maintain electromechanical systems with heavy play in Walt Disney World. So they were hiring Air Force electronic technicians when they would get out of the Air Force, and they couldn't fix electromechanical games. Can you imagine this? They're electronic technicians working on jets and they're computers, just and they're switches. protecting our country, and they and cannot fix relays, relays and contacts and cams and motor units. Unbelievable. Well, so what did they do? They made their own. The machines you just saw over there are not real. The gun game you played, Chicago Coins, that's not a Chicago Coins game. It's only the glass. They made the glass, that's not even a real glass. They no. made the glass, they gave Chicago Coins credit because they copied it. But that is a computerized game. It doesn't have the score reels, a turn, right. the solenoid. They are scoretronic flipping digits, all controlled they, by a computer. They lied to us. They lied, but it was a very early computer. And to get parts for this is really, really tough. When I got these machines, unfortunately, they were all broken. No one at Disney was able to fix them anymore. It was just gone. How many did you get? Uh, there's eight of them that are the baseballs and the guns. And I, I paid a lot of money for them, and I paid a lot of money to transport them here. But because they were from that Penny Arcade at Disney, how could you not have them? How could you not save them? Then came the task, and I made it my winter project. I had it here in the middle of the store all winter long. I'm calling China to look through their back warehouses for surplus processors and RAM chips that they haven't made since 1970. 
and I was able to find enough to resurrect all the machines and to have enough to keep them going for the rest of my lifetime anyway. When? When? Thank you, Todd, and thank you, Randy. Yeah, that was great. So, awesome. <clears throat> so, uh, so now we're kind of getting through. There were some oddball things in the middle, too. So uh, now we're about halfway through this 45-degree bend, and there was a cashier booth uh, off to one side, uh, which <laughs> had a nice little lovely cashier sign lit, lit up. So you didn't go over to you know a change machine to get change in this arcade ever. You always went up to the person in the little cage and gave him your dollar or five dollars or whatever, and you told him, you know, how many quarters you wanted or how many dimes or nickels or whatever, and that person would get it for you. We got a tweet today from a listener, Nomaeus. He said, I spent way too much money I earned as a CM in 1990 on the Smash TV at the Penny Arcade. So he was in the modern section. Uh, he said he, re he recalls an elderly man working there at the change booth who had to be in his 70s. And I remember that too. We actually, that was one of the, the funny things that we noticed. This would have been in the 1990s. I think his name was Bill. Uh, he looked super old and also not very happy, <laughs> which was astounding because you're used to like very smiley, friendly Disney employees. But this guy was all business. He was just like, you know, what do you want? Here it is. Here's your stuff. Go play games. Don't lean on the cabinets, boys. Yeah. But I have to say, it was so noisy in there because, you know, you had video games. You had, you uh, know, these electromechanical games. It, you, it was like the cacophony in that place was ridiculous. So I'm sure if you had to be in there for like an eight-hour shift or a ten-hour shift, at the end of the day, you were probably just done. So... Tip of the hat to you, Bill, for putting up with that for probably 20 or 30 years. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, uh, in the back of this section was something that was really neat. Uh, are you guys familiar at all with band organs? Have you ever heard of? I know where you're going with this. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, so in, in the turn of the century, before, you know... Before there was recorded music, you know, you could just buy a record or a Victroller and, and play it. Uh, you know, there was live music, and and that's what you did. Uh, you know, if you, you hired a piano player or a seven-piece band or, or whatever, you, whatever you needed, uh, because that's how you played music. Well, uh, if you couldn't do that, uh, they started to come up with automated solutions to handle that. So, so what you got was a series of of things uh, that are loosely called band organs that basically are real instruments uh, that are played via a piano roll type thing. So it's neat. It's not just a player piano. It's way bigger than that. They're air powered so they can blow horns and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, there's still one uh, in the uh, uh, 1600 Park Fair at, um, at the Grand Floridian, if, if you want to know what I'm talking about. But uh, inside of, and there's actually a, a smallish one that's in the Main Street uh, uh, train station now. But uh, the one that was inside the Penny Arcade was really special. Uh, it's, it was one of only a handful uh, that were made by Wurlitzer that was still in operation. Uh, it was a Wurlitzer Style 32 Concert Piano Orchestra. Uh, just to give you an idea of the the scale of this thing, 
It was 11 feet, three inches tall, seven foot, four inches wide and four foot, five inches deep. And it, and it weighed 3,800 pounds. <laughs> so this thing was a beast. Uh, it was manufactured in either 1911 or 1912. Uh, it was acquired by Disneyland in 1953 from a private collector named Albert Clifford Rainey. Um, the story was that he uh, he passed away. Uh, he had this enormous collection of band organs and other mechanical devices, you know, from the turn of the century. He, he had been collecting them. I think he was a traveling salesman and did well and just sort of collected the stuff in it. And he had a barn full of these things in his backyard. Uh, he passed away. And at the same time, the freeway system was starting to get built in California and the state acquired his property for the freeway. So his wife, uh, who is survived by him, uh, didn't know what to do with the stuff. She tried to find buyers in the Los Angeles area. She asked Liberace if he wanted it. He was like, no, uh, and eventually she contacted Walt Disney who came and looked at the collection and, and he ended up purchasing it in 1953 for Disneyland. So hmm. Walt ended up with a whole bunch of stuff, uh, in, including this beautiful piano orchestra. So here's what was inside. You had a, a 68 note piano, 56 violins, 30, uh, cellos, 30 violas, 30 flutes, 30 piccolos, 30 clarinets, 30 oboes, 26 wow. French horns, 26 bass violins, 26 <laughs> saxophones, uh, 13 bars with chimes, a snare drum, a bass drum with a cymbal, a kettle drum, so like a timpani, a Chinese crash cymbal, a triangle, a tambourine, castanets, and then there was also like a tremolo action so they could like make it sort of have that wavy sound. This was all contained in this one machine uh that is it's absolutely crazy that that was all crammed into one yeah one box so like with the saxophones it's like it was broken down to like you didn't have the full horn you had the mechanism that you needed in order to make that sound so in those cases you know with a larger instrument they would break it down to what was necessary for to make the noise but sure. yeah that's a whole lot of stuff and uh i'm gonna play you a recording that i made of it uh in 1993, so you can actually enjoy it here for a second. So, so I just dropped into our chat window here a picture of a Mortier band organ, which is at the American Treasure Tour, which is located about mm, 20 minutes from my house. Uh, let me give you the 15-second version of what the American Treasure Tour is. Imagine an eccentric, wealthy person who loves to collect junk and a lot of pop culture junk and things. This guy bought a gigantic 
warehouse. And when I say gigantic, I mean like think end of Indiana Jones gigantic. And it is just filled to the gills with stuff. So the way you tour this is they have set tours and you board a little like train, uh, not on tracks, like a, like a train car that they that they ride around from a like a turf cart pulls it. And they take you through the place and stop at various points where you are allowed to get out, but it's all very controlled. And one of the key things is this band organ that I just shared the picture with you of, which they tell the story was purchased by Walt Disney, spent time in both Disneyland and Walt Disney World before it was eventually acquired by these people. So uh, your story of him owning a collection of band organs makes sense. Yeah. In fact, they, they, they got quite a lot of stuff from this. I actually have the full complete list and, and I'm we're going to do something new on the podcast. We're going to, you know, we're going to do a podcast. We're going to do the article that we normally do that accompany, but I'm going to do a full blown article about the arcade with these, with a, like a full list of what Walt purchased and some other things that, that I was able to get a hold of. Cause it's really fascinating when you like <laughs> to go into depth of this. It's like, it's the collection is just astounding and I'm still doing some work to, tie up some loose ends of where some of the stuff ended up, but we'll, I'm going to do a real thorough write up about this too. So you can get into the, the real minutia of the details. Um, cool. So uh, one of the things that I found out that was really cool. So we've mm-hmm. talked about Bill Sully Sullivan a couple of times on the show. Uh, so started Disneyland, came out to Florida. He was vice president of the magic kingdom uh, from oh, 1987 until 1993 you know, started the Jungle Cruise, worked and worked his way up through the company, did all kinds of stuff. Uh, still with us, fortunately, and and has shown up at a couple events. Well, he loved this machine so much. He actually had the technicians at Disney install a button on the back of it, so he could just walk up to it and hit a button on the back and play it whenever he wanted, instead of having to pay a quarter in order to get it started. And <laughs> man, I wish I knew that now because that could have saved me some money over the course of the years. <laughs> but that's really beautiful. Um, <laughs> that the machine is is no longer a Disney. It's it's actually now been fully restored by a collector named Robert Middleton in uh, Glisten, Wisconsin. And I guess occasionally uh, he'll open up his collection for people to come and check out. So if you're in Wisconsin, maybe you know fate will. Well, we'll we'll have to plan a band organ event then. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'm, sure, I'm sure that will attract dozens of fans. Dozens. <laughs> uh, it it had a it had a kind of a rough life. Uh, when it was there, uh, it got the case was sort of fell into disrepair several times. And, you know, when they took it to Disney, it's like first they put like a Formica facade on top of the wood that was there. And then they like covered it with other wood. But apparently it wasn't really the way we saw it was not the way it was intended to look like uh, when I saw it. There was like plain glass so you could look in and see the mechanisms. But the the original paint job was much, much fancier. Uh, than what we had experienced. And there were a couple of times, I think in the 80s, uh, like they noticed that there was termite damage. So they had to like strip it all down and like actually rebuild the wood in some of it. So it it, it had some love over the years, but like now it's supposed to be in really perfect shape. Um, mm. So that's that's kind of the old stuff. So you telling us, I think on the last episode, that the first time you walked into the Penny Arcade, you saw all the old stuff. You were you were expecting new things, and uh, you didn't see any of it, so you turned around and left. So the if you had continued a little bit forward, 
the room would have made a like hard right hand turn. Uh, and this is kind of where like Casey's has taken over uh, the backside where you can sit now. Uh, the arcade continued out of the back of Main Street and connected up with the, uh, the, the street where you would walk past Coke Corner on your way to Adventureland. So this is kind of a big space. Um, there were a couple of like mid-century things in here. I, I seem to remember, and I could be wrong, and there was like one of those bubble top hockey games. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were great. In this area uh, at times. Uh, and here's one. You'll have to rack your brains if you can remember. Do you remember the flying games where there would be like a little airplane on a wire? Yes. And you'd have to make it go like up and down and through like these little obstacles. And, and it, was not, a like, it was a turntable, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And you have to like that. not touch. I yeah, do there remember was, those. Yeah. There was one of those there. And I'm trying to find a picture of this anywhere. There was this really interesting lunar lander game so the it was if you if you think of like a cabinet that you would see with like one of those uh like claw games so like huge empty glass you know huge glass top it had a sort of like a moonscape on the bottom and then instead of a claw there was this lunar module like a 1960s like actual apollo like little you know goofy looking lunar module and i seem to recall there was like painted flame uh coming out of the bottom of it because it was supposed to be like you were landing and then the f where the feet came down uh there were these metal like like wires hanging out the bottom of the feet and the idea is that you would control the lunar module. It would tell you where it wanted you to land, I think. Or maybe you just would like try to land on spot targets that were like different points. So you'd manipulate the joysticks, get it over where you wanted, push the button, and then like the lander would come down. And if you touched in the right spot, you would get points. You know, and if you touched in the wrong spot, then you wouldn't get points. But it's just I've never seen anything like it anywhere else <laughs> in my life. And uh, it's just a really unusual piece that they had. But I'm sure in 1971, like with the moon landing happening right then, that was probably the latest thing at that point. Because, I mean, we're still like it wasn't until 77, 78 that you started to get actual video games that we start to think of, like, you know, computer space and space. Space Invaders was 78. So, you know, there was a long time that like none of those games would have existed, you know, in the Magic Kingdom. Um, but in in the modern section, it's like they had a whole bunch of pinball machines. So it's like in my photos, there's like the Star Wars pinball machine with the plastic Darth Vader on the top. And I'm sure in the 70s, it's like they probably had, you know, all the popular pinball machines of its time. Uh, but this the back half was all very modern. Uh, it's It was basically like whatever was current. Um, so they, they had current machines there. So like, uh, they had smash TV. I remember, um, we used to play this wild west video game that was there called sunset riders. I remember they had the, um, the aliens game, the shooting game with like the gun where you'd like, were they from the movie aliens, which is like incredibly violent for the magic kingdom. It's like really funny that's one of the things that they had but you know they would have had you know pac-man and space invaders and all all the usual things in that space 
Um, and it, it changed out quite frequently. So, you know, as, as time went on, it's like they would get the new stuff in there. So you, you always had like a nice blend of the new and the old. Um, so, um, this operated until, uh, 1994. And, uh, I want to talk a little bit about now that we've, you know, walked through, it's like where the stuff came from and where it ended up. So the games kind of came from two locations. One was uh, the gentleman that we talked about from California. And another one was a, a man named Paul Eakin, who was in Missouri. And he had uh, two kind of show places for his collection in Missouri. One was called the Million Dollar Museum in Sykeston. And the other one was the Gay 90s Melanie Museum that was in St. Louis. Now, he had a bunch of band organs and a bunch of these these kind of games. Uh and you may have, if you're a person who that peruses like old records at Goodwill or whatever, you, you may have come across like album after album of, of band organ music recorded at the Gay 90s Museum, which, which apparently must have been a big thing because I, I know I've, when I used to like do record diving at Goodwill, it's like I would come across these things all the time. And I had bought a few of them, not really, you know, knowing <laughs> that they were. So, um, this, this was like a person with a private collection who put this stuff together. Uh, the museum that he had opened this last one, uh, for the St. Louis people, it's like it opened in the mid sixties and ended up closing, we think on September 1st, 1970. Uh, and when that closed down, he sold some of them to collectors, some of them to a museum in Sarasota, Florida called Bellum's Cars and Music of Yesterday, which I have been to. And I think it's closed. It used to be across the street from the airport in Sarasota. So any of our Florida listeners, you may have gone there as a child. And then the rest went to Disney in Florida. Uh, and in a previous episode, we talked about, I thought that this sale was connected to the uh, the sale of the Big Bertha machine, which was used for the, to do America's on Parade, uh, the music for that. But that, in fact, was not the case. That machine... Uh, stayed with him and they, Disney bought pretty much everything other than that. So when this was all said and done, Disney ended up with piles of old arcade games, like eight or nine of these band organs of different sizes and player pianos and all kinds of stuff. And I remember for a while they would kind of get brought out at special events and things. They would, you know, sometimes at the Disneyland conventions and things, they'd bring out three or four of them and have them out playing. Um, they, they had an enormous amount. When um, Tokyo Disneyland opened up, they shipped a whole bunch of them over to Tokyo. And uh, they're still there today, uh, as far as I know. I've, I've seen some pictures online and uh, a lot of the stuff from this collection uh, ended up over there. So, so part of it went to, some of it went to Disneyland and stayed there. Some of it went to Florida and then some of it went to uh, Tokyo, which is really cool where they ended up, what happened. So the arcade ended up closing in, uh, in 1994, uh, and it eventually got replaced by a, they sort of blew out the merchandise in this area and turned it into a sports related merchandise so they closed the penny arcade and they closed the magic shop blew out all the walls um the magic shop got turned into like a sports memorabilia store uh 
called the Hall of Champions. Uh, and I think maybe the this sports store was also called the Hall of Champions. And they retained a couple of like the play football games and uh, Casey's took over the back half of the arcade and became like an overflow seating area. Since all the seating was outside, this gave them some inside seating. Um, and they kept one of the baseball games there for a while. Uh, it, it did eventually disappear. Um, but what, what we have found, uh, and the reason is, um, so Sully Sullivan, who was the vice president of the magic kingdom, he was a big believer in the arcade. Uh, he loved it. Uh, and he ended up retiring in 93 and when he retired, new management came in and apparently what they did was they assigned profit points to every square foot of the property and they would determine, you know, whether an area was making money, making enough money or not making enough money based on these profit points. And I think this is kind of the Paul Pressler area where he came from a retail background. So uh, what they determined was that the cost of maintaining the arcade compared to the income that it derived, you know, was was too low. It wasn't worth maintaining those old arcades. They built a modern arcade in Tomorrowland. Uh so, you know, and at that point they switched over from like the quarter system to a system, I think, did they go to the cards right away in that Tomorrowland arcade? I can't remember if they ever did tokens or if it went right to like swipe cards. For being in the Tomorrowland arcade and they had little wireless dongles on all of the arcade games and cards at some point. But, um, but yeah, so some of them... Some of the, the, there was, oh, I forgot to mention there was a steeplechase game that had like these little horses going around that went over to, um, Saratoga Springs for a while in the restaurant there. I had to hunt that down one day about a year ago and found someone who I was talking about, someone who actually knew what I was talking about, which was incredibly surprising. And she said, oh yeah, I remember they took that out about two years ago because some kids stuck their finger <laughs> in it and got their fingers stuck in it. So... <laughs> So that one, the horse just ripped it right off. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think anything happened, but they were like, Oh no, that's, that's not going to work. Um, a, a couple of them, like there's a, there is a love tester. They have to get some documentation. I remember. Oh, another thing that used to be in the penny arcade that I forgot about, uh, was this machine that would dispense horoscopes in little rolls. Oh, so yeah. you would you remember those. Oh yes. I, I can take you to some on the ocean city boardwalk. You can still oh, okay. get them. Yep. And, and one of our listeners uh, tweeted us about that, and I remember that I used to get those, too. The, those are great. It's like, so you get one. They would, yeah, on they'd, like, look like, they'd look like a cigarette when they came out. And yeah. You'd, you'd unroll them. and Yeah, they're quite long and pretty detailed, yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Oh, that was... Yes, that, I did have a conflict in my family. How did it know? <laughs> <laughs> That, oh yeah, so here's here's the tweet from uh, Alicia Warnick uh, Ellis, and she said, "I used to love to get the rolled up horoscope scrolls at the Penny Arcade. It always played in the. I always played in there while we waited for the night parade. Yeah, that was a great place. Actually, that was a great place to wait for the electrical parade at night. So, uh, so thank you for for reminding me of that one because I forgot about that. Uh, so uh, a handful of stuff stayed, uh, but a lot of it actually got sold in 1997." Uh, a collector got a win. This is probably about the same time that Randy ended up buying some of his stuff. If he didn't do it a little before, uh, they decided to let in uh, and they contracted with a company called Mechantiques. 
and they sold the collection to McCantiques and then McCantiques held a sale or auction and sold off the bits and pieces to uh, the different collectors. Uh, and, and that was quite a big deal. I remember about 1999, uh, I found that uh, listing and I, I contacted them to try to get a list of what they sold so I can see exactly what they ended up with. So hopefully we'll get that soon. Um, in one of the recent auctions in California, what's the company that Van Eaton Galleries, they, they had the, they had the lighthouse machine, uh, that they sold. And I think also one of the love testers in their catalog, probably their first or second one. So those are off with collectors now somewhere. Um, there's still a few mechanical instruments, uh, at Disney world. Uh, the big Bertha, uh, is at the grand Floridian hotel. Uh, now, there was a gentleman who maintained those for years uh, named Bob Moore. Uh, he says it sounds terrible. He says it needs to come out for a complete rebuild, but it's not likely to happen soon because of the difficulty of removing it from the location. It's mounted in a niche, uh, and the only way to get it out is to remove it with a forklift <laughs> and take it out because it's so heavy. So... Um, and he said even if they could take it out to do a restoration, they couldn't bring it back to full voice. Because even now, and it's like really bad condition, it's so loud, people complain like that it's too loud and they can't enjoy their meals while it's playing. So um, the instrument in Main Street is a Seaberg KT. Uh, and uh, there is a Seaberg E with flute pipes that's in Crockett's Tavern in Fort Wilderness. Uh, and then there is a Coinola Midget with flute pipes uh, somewhere that they still own in a Wurlitzer style C orchestra piano. And I think that's what was in uh, the um, golden horseshoe for a while. So there's, there's still some, some of these things out there, which is pretty cool. And how I've got an interesting piece of history regarding the murals that were. Oh yes. We did. Yeah, talk about So murals. there were murals uh, on the walls in there. They depicted uh, different scenes of Americana, specifically Wright brothers uh, a, a Victorian era amusement arcade, quite fitting, um, and a rural Illinois River Valley scene. Now, any reason do you know why we would have those specific? Yes, actually, those paintings were. This is so. This is so not, cool. The original paintings used in the Hall of yep. Presidents in the movie part of it. They're huge because the Hall of Presidents had that really long wide yeah. screen. All all these paintings are incredibly long. Yeah, so there was there is the picture of the steamboat docked uh, in Illinois where they you know they start to talk about Lincoln in Illinois. There's like this big overhead shot. So that was one of them. There's a picture of the Wright brothers and the Wright brothers airplane. Uh, there's a painting of uh, race cars. Uh, and then the painting of the uh, arcade from the turn of the century. And uh, I was, I actually have pictures of those, Todd. Cool. So well, we really for real this time, I'm sending these pictures to Todd so you can scan them <laughs> so we can enjoy these all. Um, and then we'll have to sort of like piece these together because I had to take their pictures were so big. I actually took multiple shots. So that way I could, knowing that someday in the future, I would actually combine them in Photoshop and like make them whole. Um, there is a, a nod in in the uh, the arcade one, uh, you guys. If you, you probably don't know this off your top of your head, if I say this, but if you are at all familiar with Edward Manet's uh, "A Bar at the Folie Boucher," 
Berger, sorry, a, a bar at the Folie Berger painting. It's like this girl in black wearing a necklace with kind of like short hair. It's, it's one of Manet's like very famous paintings. Whoever the artist was on that actually stuck that girl in the arcade, mm-hmm. <laughs> like working at the arcade. So I thought that was a neat little nod that was in there. But yeah, it's funny. It's like those paintings from the Hall of Presidents ended up all over Walt Disney World when it first opened yeah. up. Uh, there are still two or three of them in the um, in the um, hosp- wait, not the hospitality house. What do you? City what's house. the city hall? The city hall. City hall. Yeah, we, we actually yeah, Brian we saw I saw them those. last. Yeah, so like the were they and at Brian, I told you where they drove the golden spike. Like it starts with them in the film driving the golden spike and then it backs out to show that it's in that giant exposition hall. So that, that was in there. And then there were a bunch of paintings also in the, um, the Liberty tree tavern, like the, I don't know if you guys remember, like there was this one cow that was like staring at the screen. It's like that painting was upstairs by the bathrooms, like for the longest time. And then when they finally redid it, they were like, Holy crap, (laughs) this is all the original artwork. They like, took it up and restored it and probably put it in the archives. So yeah. So weird that they were just like, what are we going to do with this stuff? Eh, put it in the arcade, whatever. Well, how thank you for taking us back to the penny arcade. Now, when I have loose change, I'm not going to know where to spend it. Cause there is no place to spend that loose change anymore down there. So, but, uh, I, I think it's time to board a monorail and, uh, venture over to the Fiesta fun center. So Brian, because Main Street Arcade wasn't the only place you could have fun, Todd. And it became more than just fun later on, too, as we're going to find out. It, it, <laughs> In it a very did. 90s way. So, so let's talk about Walt Disney World's most famous resort entertainment slash arcade room. Uh, it may be Walt Disney World's only famous <laughs> resort <laughs> arcade room because... Nobody really talks about the ones that existed at the other place. Although the the one at the Polynesian had some had some good stuff. Moana Mickey's, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let let's give a little bit bit of the background. The Fiesta Fun Center was located where present day the Wave Restaurant is located, uh, behind the check in counters on the ground level of the Contemporary Resort. When the resort opened in 1971, uh, the check-in counter was where it is now. But the area that is now the Wave and was Fiesta Fun Center was a flex convention space with the odd name of the Sunshine State Exhibitorium. <laughs> and, I, and I always love how they make those, those things up. So it was like flex space for, uh, you know, like if you're, if your convention was checking in and you were like the international soap manufacturers, they might direct you to your convention check-in, which could have been in that room or could have had some pre-convention displays, that kind of stuff. One of the things that I noticed looking through the floor plans of that today, which I came across, is there was a car lift back there. So if you were going to give away a car or have some sort of like automotive display as part of your and I've I've actually worked at some trade shows where we like gave away cars and put a car up on stage and rolled it out like we're giving away the BMW Z for you know the top salesperson mm-hmm. it's like this would have been a play there would have been a facility there that you could have you know brought an automobile in you know so you could give out your GMC Hornet or what have you 
Yeah, because keeping in mind that at that time, the Contemporary was the flagship resort, right. and it was also the convention resort. So they had all those ballrooms on the on the uh, third, second floor, right? Yeah. That's where all the ballrooms are, second and third floor, yeah. So uh, that was what the space was used for. Um, as has been covered many times, and we've referenced on the show, in the early years of the resort, uh, it was a bit of trial and error uh, because they hadn't run a resort before. They'd only run Disneyland, uh, the amusement side of things. So running the resort, running these conventions, what they began to learn was that there wasn't a lot for people to do once the parks closed at six o'clock at night. And in addition to trying to come up with entertainment on the beaches and on the boats and things like that for kids... Uh, they quickly converted this space and started to drop like air hockey tables and pool tables and that kind of stuff just kind of in there in like a barren when the room wasn't in use for something so that it would be something for younger people to do after hours and even adults. Um, in 1973, uh, it formally became the Fiesta Fun Center. It was a dedicated gaming and entertainment room, and I will uh, quote the official D23 description of it. Fiesta Fun Center game area in the Contemporary Resort. This large area was originally built as convention exhibit space, but the demand for more facilities for evening entertainment for guests necessitated the building of the Fiesta Fun Center. Its video games, air hockey, and other amusements seem to always be popular, a theater in one quarter of the room has featured screenings of Disney films. There is a snack bar, and it was later known as the Food and Fun Center. So there's your Reader's Digest version. Uh, but in 1973, it became a dedicated gaming and entertainment room. And it is remembered for a couple of things initially. One was having late hours, when so much of the resort's offering, especially for kids, used to shut down in early evenings. This thing would stay open beyond midnight. Um... The, the first thing they added to that when they formalized the space was a snack bar. In fact, it was one of the first things you saw when you walked in off to your right, if I'm correct, Hal, right? I think it was. Yes, yeah. that is correct. Yeah, it was it was even there during the like convention center days because, you know, mm-hmm. conventioners get hungry. Right. So so yeah. that operated through the center's entire life. And if you remember, the Grand Canyon Concourse had a succession of dining options. There were five or six different restaurants up there at a given point. And they had a coffee shop replete with a counter like a diner or coffee shop should have. Uh, But the Fiesta Fun Center snack bar really served what we would today call quick service. Uh, That was your spot to be able to grab, you know, what we learned of hot dogs in bags uh, and and other snacks. you'll get that reference in a second but that's that's one of the things that that it was and so there was this area where you could come in and go to the counter and get your snack and then there was a little seating area in its hues of orange yellow and white formica all over the place that was the color scheme uh and off to the other side you know you looked out on to the gaming floor uh so Hal kind of mentioned it when he was talking about main street arcade that the video games we've all kind of come to know, uh, which did, you know, the first killer video game was Space Invaders in 78, as he said. Uh, and after that came Donkey Kong and Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man and all the stuff that tended to dominate what 
we would call the golden age of coin operated games uh before 1978 what you would largely have in there would be pool skee ball air hockey checks hockey don't forget shuffle oh, yeah. bowling uh where oh, you slide yeah, those yeah, yeah. those metal discs and the and the and the pins go up instead of down and lots and lots of pinball uh i mean there were probably 50 pinball games in there uh which take up a lot of real estate versus what the coin ops would ultimately take up but even today if you walk into the wave and picture the the uh bar area being the snack bar and the entire rest of the restaurant being the it's gaming huge. floor to to you know and and take right. the kitchen away the kitchen that's behind the dining room area and figure out the footprint it's it's enormous uh, for an arcade. Do you guys see the arcade. picture with the number of air hockey I, tables? There's like seven, eight of them li- just lined up right in the row. Yeah, yeah. Lined up right in a row, right up yep. against each other, too. Like not, not an nope. inch of space between them. I was going to say, we, we actually found the physical dimensions today. It's like yeah. 134 feet by 122 okay. feet. The average home <laughs> is about 30 by 50, just to give it 30 by 40, uh, you know, <laughs> footprint-wise. So It was, seemed like walking into, like, the where again, not to use this, like, twice, but, like, it was felt like walking into the warehouse at the end of the Indiana Jones movie, except yeah. <laughs> filled with games. Yeah, and so I the way I would look at it, too, is if you the, the, the coin-operated games that they did have then, the pre like Space Invaders era. So <laughs> if you watch the movie Jaws, and I vividly remember playing this game, so I'm hoping that the Fiesta mm-hmm. Fun Center had it. But if you watch the movie Jaws, at one point there's this meta uh, instance where the kid is playing the Killer Shark video game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which which I used to play at the Aquaport Arcade in Ocean City, New Jersey. It was a pre it was a 1972 Sega game, and it actually used like projected images of a shark, like almost like slide projections, and you would shoot at it. It had like this disc underneath in in the guts of the game that would that would use different images. And when you hit the shark, mm-hmm. a bloody shark image would would, would, <laughs> would project where where the other one was. And so like games like that, there was a lot of those types of games, those push button trivia games. Uh, that kind of stuff was all what you saw pre uh, Space Invaders and and like CRT screen games that that we that we became. That's a cathode ray tube for you kids out there who have no idea what, <laughs> what we're talking about. The old old tube TVs. So uh, that that's that's the kind of stuff that was there before that. They also had a movie theater there, um, <laughs> and there was a, in the in the one in the back corner. I don't know how big it was. How could probably maybe shed a little more light. You know, I never got to go in. It was one of those weird. There was this, what I assumed was like a, um, like a wall, sort of set up to like cut the dark. So I remember you, you would walk into like this cylinder, and I, right. it seemed like that was probably so you could kind of like snake your way around so the light wouldn't leak in from the outside into there without having a physical door. Yeah. But, I, you know, in all the years I went back, I never walked into that theater. But I assumed it had to be tiny. Well, it had, yeah. No, it was in the back of the arcade. It was part of it. It was it was a room in the back of the arcade. But uh, we do know it cost a dollar and that they used to do first run and classic Disney films in there they would run. And I found one somewhere. It's not in my notes, but I found 
one person who recounted that they used to go stay at the Contemporary the same week in February every year. And every year they stayed there, that was the week they were running the Snowball Express in the, <laughs> in the theater. So it's like every time we were there, that Snowball Express was the movie that was running, like, which I thought was funny. And also shout out to Jason Grant for it being his favorite movie. Um, so yeah, those were dollar. The movie theater didn't last that long. I'll get back to that in a second. Uh, one of the other original attractions in the Fiesta Fun Center that lasted until it ended was a caricaturist. And so originally the caricaturists were placed out in the lobby of the contemporary and they would do either there or on the Grand Canyon concourse. They would sit there and do sketches, uh, of people for a dollar 25, uh, when Fiesta Fun Center opened, there was a booth inside that doubled as like the change and that machine ate my money booth. Uh, but they, the caricaturist would be set up there, the artist, and they would draw you uh, on, a, on, a, on a piece of paper that was also projected on an overhead. Boy, they don't use those sheets oh, the in schools anymore. Yeah. But so like, yeah, they would a clear sheet that would use an overhead projector. Shout out to Mr. McCoy, my eighth grade history teacher, who used those things. He he did one set in like 1971 and used them for every <laughs> class he ever taught. And it, and and when I asked him one time why, he's like, history doesn't change. Smart <laughs> man. He's like, I can do it once and that's it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, they would you'd stand there and they would sketch you and and uh, and then hand you the sketch. And uh, we know from Dan Adams. Uh, who posts a lot on one of the Facebook pages for ex-cast members? He he did that job for years, and that uh, it was a dollar twenty-five, and the artist got twenty-five cents of that, and Disney wow. got the dollar. Wow! So so he said there was an incentive to do them as fast as you could, and he gives a shout out in one of his comments to a guy named Jack Marler, who held the record for drawing the most caricatures in a single day <laughs> at three hundred and thirty-seven people. Wow. <laughs> so JT was doing some quick math, and I forget how many people we figured an hour he was. There's like 20, 20 something people an and that's, hour. That's like. 80, 84 bucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's insane. It's, well, in the 1970s, you know, that wasn't a bad yeah. day, right? Like, there was no. There was another guy who said in the movie theater, uh, this guy was in tech services, and he said that he had to run the, the movies because recreation wasn't allowed. So. Todd and I theorized maybe it was some weird union rule or something that <laughs> exactly that like like so on the snack bar, uh, Randy Senna, our friend uh, from Wildwood, mentioned the overhead projector in the movie area and and uh, he said the snack bar had pre-made hot dogs in the bag, and that's one of the things I, I referred earlier. So if you've ever gone and bought them, I, I some sports games when they have the guys walking around uh, with the with their trays selling uh, hot dogs, you know, at, at baseball games and all, they're pre-wrapped in those foil bags. That's how we got them delivered uh, in, in grade school. We didn't have a cafeteria or a kitchen. So they made it at the high school, put them into the foil bags, wrapped them up, put them in these brown insulated containers, trucked them over and served them. To so us. Randy remembers they also had McCormick ketchup at the food and fun at the Fiesta Fun Center snack bar, McCormick ketchup. as opposed to Hunt's or Heinz. They had McCormick ketchup and red and white striped straws made of waxed paper that would collapse halfway through oh. your chocolate milk, your half pint <laughs> of chocolate milk, which is funny that they didn't have plastic straws there, but they were ahead uh, of their time. 
Uh, you know, well, apparently not because then they, they 86 them because they fell apart in the chocolate milk. So <laughs> that, that, those were a couple of things I wanted to share about there. Um, so at some point in the mid seventies, the movie theater went away. Uh, there are two possible theories I've heard. One is that it was just relocated, that they started running them elsewhere in the resort. Uh, but the movie theater location was then pulled out and a shooting gallery was installed in that space. Now, I started deep. I knew I knew plenty about this shooting gallery and the company that made it. And I, I got about halfway through my notes and I'm just like, how Bowers is like the idiot savant <laughs> of the shooting galleries, especially this one. So I'm just going to introduce it and kind of let him run with it. But. The shooting gallery was made by a company called McGlashan Enterprises, M-A-C-G-L-A-S-H-A-N. And they were the manufacturer. In fact, they were the subject of a 1973 article in the Walt Disney Cast magazine, which I have a copy of the article here, uh, which is pretty cool. Tells you the history of the company and that kind of I can send this to you, Hal. Uh, but they're notable because in 1969, Walt Disney Productions purchased them. Uh, but then allowed them to continue to operate just as they always had as an independent company. Uh, they made really cool shooting galleries, which began to incorporate some of the Disney touches, including Disney molds of actual like set pieces from the rides and things from around the parks, haunted mansion effects, things like that, all of which we'll touch on. But I did want to mention that this article in 73 talks about they're in research and development at this point on the light guns, uh, which would eventually become the infrared guns that they use now in the parks. Uh, McGlatchin invented them. Uh, but at this time, they were about to roll out ice cannons and ice cannons shot ice cubes uh, instead of uh, the little pellet ammunition that they were using. So the, the, the last bit of background I give you, they did the shooting gallery at... Uh, Disneyland and they did the one for, obviously for Walt Disney World because Disney owned them at that point uh, both of those famously used originally lead pellets which required the legend is that they painted the set pieces every night overnight I, I don't know that I buy that but I think that's more legend than accurate but uh, they did probably touch them up once a week uh, but they actually fired live ammunition. And then the article talks about how they would move to like these plastic specialized pellets and eventually to, although it was still being developed here, to the light guns that we know today that are used. How have at it with the shooting gallery that everybody loves. Well, that is, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the ice pellet thing because I actually found about a month or two ago the patent that they filed for that. And didn't realize can, yeah. like what the, yeah. Oh, there was like, they had a whole ice cannon too that they were. Yeah. They were, I'm, I'm going to send this to you because it's uh it's a great article. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense because then you would have a hard pellet that would contact the target, but it would just melt. And right. then you wouldn't have to, I mean, cause the other thing you'd have to do not only is like repaint all this stuff, somebody at the end of the night would have to go around and sweep up all the pellets and recollect them in order to like put back into the guns. So <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, the intern out there sweeping up pellets. That's amazing. So, uh, so this shooting gallery, as, as Brian talked about was, was one of the first light, light galleries that you saw. And, uh, yeah, they, they it sort of pioneered this technology. They had come from, uh, 
you know, from the lead pellet and we're probably looking to do something, you know, that was more space age and probably that offered, you know, you know, less maintenance and, and less craziness. So, uh, so they, I don't know if this gentleman was a Disney employee or if it was their, their employee, but, uh, we can see from the, the artwork, uh, that was available for this, that a couple of different people worked on this. There was a Joe Denton who did some concept paintings. Uh, let's see. He did one, two of these. There's a gentleman named David Lopez who worked on some other of these concepts. Um, but this was kind of set up kind of in a wedge shape. Um, and there were sort of, there was like a section of toys. There was a section that was like a swamp. There was a pirate section. Uh, and then, uh, like sort of the strange little castle section with some miscellaneous stuff around it and some, some trees and stuff. So it was kind of like a, a mixture of a bunch of different themes. It wasn't, you know, one theme in particular, and then let's see, there were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 guns that would that you could point towards all this. Uh, and it's really fascinating because the the layout for this, uh, you, there's actually like a sheet that's by Wed Enterprises that's like stamped with web that says that this thing was released for production in uh, May 5th of 1977. So I guess that's when... This probably would have showed up was uh, late in 77 or early in 78. Um, so uh, as Brian said, Disney worked with the company to produce this. And you can see several uh, very familiar animatronics characters like in uh, photographs of, uh, of the shooting gallery. So, uh, for example, the alligators from America Sings yeah that, that ended up in splash mountain it's like that's a target that you could shoot at and the gator would open his open his that mouth was and... the first thing i noticed as clearly a a disney set piece yeah um there is uh one of the scared cats from the haunted mansion uh that's in there uh there are frogs which i you know what i don't know if these are based on I the jungle cruise frogs or if these well you know you know what's interesting is that that same setup was used i believe at cedar point or some other ones yes and the frogs look identical there so i you know i saw them how and i said oh wow that uh, i don't know and then i found that they were at other uh, amusement well parks, but so. but the reason for that is that they sold to other amusement parks so even in this right. article in 73 they talk about their shooting galleries being in Six Flags parks over Georgia, mm -hmm. Texas, and Mid-America, Opryland in Tennessee, Kings Island in Ohio, Carowinds in North Carolina. Uh, so people would hunt these down over the years and say like, oh, the old Fiesta Fun Center shooting gallery is in Carowinds. And then it would start these online discussions of like, no, 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 that's just one made by the same company. Yeah, and it's true. It's like, there. I think this one is still in Cedar Point. I don't know if it's been closed, but like very recently, it's like this, this actually was still in, in Cedar Point where, uh, so you may be able to still play it today. No kidding. Um, that's cool. Head over yeah, there, the, JT. Yeah, I'll yeah. head up right now. There's like a hanging possum, probably very similar to what ended up on Big Thunder. There were woodpeckers, mm -hmm. which are probably taken from nature's wonderland. Um, there was like a haunted mansion, one of the pop-up heads, like dressed in a diver suit that would pop and out of a... And people should know there are tons of photos of this particular shooting gallery on on the web. Uh, I mean, Dave Ensign did a magnum opus on this. 
there, uh, Mike uh, Bounds, right? It uh, yeah. has, has talked about it. Uh, there's two or three other people. There's 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 a lot of actual photos of of these uh, shooting galleries out there where you will instantly recognize set pieces from the rides. Yeah, so- or, or at the very least, Disney artists contributions to to their set pieces absolutely and and the way that this worked is there were it was all light based so there were these kind of red discs that that were targets underneath and then your gun shot out a you know like a white light and if your gun you know hit that red spot then it would activate uh you know some sort of gag so like you know the cat and some of these gags had sound so there were tape recorders attached to them and when you would hit the thing like the cat would go uh, there were, yeah, so much stuff. Well, and no point, no points were scored either. It was just, <laughs> yeah, no, it was you would just, just for fun. Just, like, just, yeah. just for fun. Just, 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 just to hit the target. Yeah, well, you they, got, they, yeah. Dave's, Dave's video of the one that he did at Cedar, Cedar Point, uh, he's like, here, zoom in on Beacon Joe. And the camera person, who I think is his wife, is like, what are you talking about? He's like, that guy there in the scuba mask, that's Beacon Joe. It's the Beacon Joe animatronic. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's just because they do zoom in on it, and it's clearly Beacon Joe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just funny to see that outside of the Disney parks. I'm yeah. kind of disappointed they don't still sell that stuff to places because it'd be nice to be able to go and use a Disney shooting gallery around here. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? Well, the, the funny thing about this one is from time to time, this gallery ends up on eBay. So one, one, one of those. Yeah. One of <laughs> like this, this actual the one that was ac- supposedly the company says like the one that was actually in Walt Disney World shows up uh for sale so let's see the last time it was listed here's here's what it said extremely rare genuine disney shooting gallery uh attraction size 30 feet by 30 feet manufactured by wed in 1977 16 guns 72 different themed gags activated by light beam rifles including a pirate section swamp western you know blah 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 everything i just said uh Original condition, unrestored, air valves have been serviced, sounds are via eight-track players, and extra tapes are included. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. And they said you could use it in its current condition, but they could also refurb it for you and, like, change the eight-track players to digital sound and upgrade the light beam guns to laser guns, uh, which would be a little fancier. And uh, at the time, the last time I saw it listed, they were asking $365,000 for it. And now, let me just say this. Whoever you are selling it, just imagine the tax write-off you'd get donating it to the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society for permanent that's right. preservation. That's true. Exactly. That's true. So, yeah, as far as I know, it still still hadn't been bought. It was a lot of fun. It's like I know I could never resist going in there and pumping some quarters in it. And uh, and I still I still make a point to use the one in the Magic Kingdom from time to time because for years I would walk past. I mean I always loved shooting galleries on the on the boardwalk and all down down the shore here from in, in New Jersey. But uh, you know there was a while I would just pass by that uh, that shooting gallery in in Frontierland and be like ah. And now almost every trip I make a point to go over there and drop a couple quarters in and play with yeah, it. Yeah, it's still great. Now, did uh, the movie theater relocate, or where did it go after they got rid of? Well, how's ha- timing would indicate to us if that if that shooting gallery was built in '77, that is probably when the movie theater moved out of there. Because um, I, as far as I know, there was nothing in the space in between. Like, like movie theater came out, shooting gallery went in. Got it. Um, 
we have a couple of other people and things that I should probably tell you about the Fiesta Fun Center. So one of the things that it was noted for was, you know, once you got into the golden age, Todd mentioned all of the the um, air hockey uh, tables that, that you can see in the photos that are out there. And especially in the video, the Mouseketeers at, Dis- at Walt Disney World, which was 1978, uh, I think. And you can see how those, those, those tables were just stacked up rows after rows after rows and all of the pinball machines. A couple of things you'll spot in there uh, is artwork by Bill Justice on the wall. Uh, so Bill Justice uh, was a Disney artist and animator who did uh, the big murals that were in uh, the Main Street Theater, right? Yeah, the, the Walt the, Disney the Walt story. Disney, yep. And the pre-show. Where the Walt yeah. Disney story was done. And the interesting thing about those murals, uh, I read way too much about them today, but he did them in California. He sketched them out, uh, but he did not actually. So I think that I think the thought process from people like when people talk about the Bill Justice mural is that like Bill Justice stood there with his paintbrush and literally did those on the walls of <laughs> of the Main Street Theater, which is not what happened. Uh, he did a, you know, a sketch layout of it. And then that was projected onto a giant canvas, which, uh, not to get too technical, but was in uh, in a special room where the canvas lifted up and down. Um, like it was a very high ceilinged room where they, the, the canvas itself was on a, a moving uh, platform that they could lower it so that the people didn't have to work on ladders. They could work at ground level the whole time. Uh, so think of it like a car lift. You know, we'll just keep coming back here in this episode to prior themes. Uh, so they painted it. He then went in at the end and just did some touch-up work. And that's the that's the canvas that they shipped and attached to the walls in the Walt Disney story. And that when they tried to remove it 40 years later, it all started to crumble. Uh, and what happened was, as they were removing the canvas from the wall, the paint physically fell off of the canvas. It had just, like chipped and dry and fell off the canvas. So anyway, there was some Bill Just some of those Bill Justice art pieces, um, which Hal, I think, said was basically on plywood. I think so, that yeah. They, yeah. But I could be wrong. That they were like plywood cutouts, he thought, attached to the walls. But to give it, I mean, it was a very barren-looking room when they first opened it in terms of, you know, they were basically just converting convention space. So while it had that um, orange and red and white uh, color scheme it it you know it they, they, the walls were just kind of a couple of bill justice like disney characters and stuff to to touch it up but what i was going to say about all those things in a row all those tables is one of the things that it is re- re- remembered for and highly regarded for was that they didn't have one donkey kong machine they had like 10 so whatever the most <laughs> popular games of the day were they made sure they had plenty of them uh, for people to play. Uh, so which most arcades, like if you went to an arcade that had two or three of the top game, it was like a big deal. Um, so that's one of the things that that arcade was known for. Uh, it was also known recalled by how and other people for keeping those games long after most arcades had moved them out when they fell out of favor. Yeah. So I don't have any verification on this, but I think unlike other arcades where it would have been serviced by a not by a company that would have just periodically i think they actually bought the stuff you know there there may not have been a provider in central florida 
you know, close enough to them that that did that kind of servicing. So I, I honestly just think they purchased and serviced everything. So they kept stuff for a really long time. That's that's what people remember there. We actually had a listener, Joe Barlow, wrote to us yesterday that it was the first place he ever saw Star Wars, the cockpit sit-down yeah. game. That ver- mm. that version of it in 1983 that, like, you know, you saw the, the upright ones, which had that cool... Um, uh, it's not a joystick. What was it? a steering oh, yeah. wheel? Really? Like it, it was, was a yoke. Yeah, it a was yoke. a yoke. Right. And that yeah. you could fire. And then uh, this one was like one of the. It was. I don't know if it was one of the first cockpit games or not. Um, and that that game used uh, vector imaging rather. Yes. Than it was one of the very first vector imaging, which was similar to the home system called Vectrex. I huh. remember Vectrex, which had its own little monitor Vectrex? that came with it. It yeah. had it came with its own little nine inch, if that. It yeah. might have been actually smaller than that. Maybe a five inch. Black yeah, and I, I think what was yeah. unique is it wasn't what like Asteroids was vector, but I, I think it was one of the first yeah. color yes. vector, which was very unique. Atari had a, had a couple Correct. of games in that era, like Space Duel, that were color vector, but it was a very rare thing. Yeah, there was a tank battle in the submarine game with the first vector that were mm. three dimensional. And yeah, this added on the it had red, green and blue. I mean, yeah. and a little bit of fuzzy yeah. yellow. And you, good. Yeah. If you and got to that level. Too. Yeah. The forest will be with you. Oh, yeah. It's yes. always. Red five, red five standing by. <laughs> <laughs> when you put your quarter in, it would say red five standing by. And that's, that's right. And uh, <laughs> I, and then Ben Kenobi coming on saying, use the force, yeah. Luke. That, that, I remember yeah, that, too. Use the force, Luke. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. I put so many quarters in that game over the years. So. I did, too. But, I did. But, it's still one of my favorites to play on the emulator. Yeah. So that's uh, that's some of the stuff that they remember. there. Before I move on to its its final life as the Food and Fun Center, uh, there is a famous picture. Well, it's a couple things. One of the biggest events ever hosted at Walt Disney World in its infancy in those years when it was just two or three hotels and the one park was the International Chamber of Commerce in 1978, October 2nd, 1978. It's notable for a couple of reasons. I mean, one for the massive, uh, massive uh, amount of people that were there for it. Um, cause this thing is hosted all over the world. Next year's is in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, they still have it. Uh, and people come from all over the world. So there's representatives from every developed country and all this kind of stuff. But this one was notable in October, 1978, because president Jimmy Carter was coming to address the group, which he did, uh, in the castle forecourt at the magic kingdom. Uh, so he's, he made an address in front of the castle, uh, to these folks in an after hours event at night, uh, which it poured for. Uh, and so there's a lot of stories from cast members at the time about how it poured uh, and everybody had these umbrellas and everything else. But uh, either before or afterwards, uh, there is a famous picture that shows up in most of the Epcot timelines of Card Walker, who was the CEO back then, uh, showing the Epcot model and preview to President and Mrs. Carter. Um, so little known fact uh, to most people is that that picture was taken in the Fiesta Fun Center. So while the big ballroom upstairs, the ballroom of the Americas and all was being used for the Congress and for you know the meals and stuff that they were serving, what they did was they had the Imagineering people come down and clear out uh, the Fiesta Fun Center, clear clear out all the games and everything. Um, and it was sealed off and used as Wed's display area for the large Epcot site plan model. 
and other pavilion models. So they later got to see the models up close. They were all preliminary. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I think it's Widen Your World mentions in their write-up one, it was either that or Imagine Erding, that at that time they had the United Arab Emirates pavilion oh. uh, that was proposed, which had the <laughs> magic carpet ride, 1001 right. Arabian Nights magic carpet ride, which was supposed to use... Um, the, the, the effect that they used to put Barbosa and, uh, Davy Jones in the beginning of Pirates now, where they project onto that mist, oh, the, the mist. Yeah. So that was supposed to be how the genie appeared to you back in 1978. Oh, wow. Like that's, that was an aspect of the ride. So cool. Uh, but so that whole thing was there. They showed you know, President Carter, the concept art, and it really was the rollout of like what they planned to build at Epcot was was supposedly done here. So after it was over, the uh, Wed East model shop actually cannibalized the pavilion parts of that large Epcot site plan model to make the new model uh, for the Epcot Center preview display. Uh, and there wasn't time to make new world showcase models of the pavilion. So they just pulled the pieces off of off of that original from there and, and but they, yeah so that whole fiesta fun center was cleared out used as it was originally intended as flex wow. convention space so they had a secure <laughs> place to to display this stuff and then when the thing was over those guys yanked the models apart took them out of there they put all the games back <laughs> in and <laughs> and the fiesta fun center uh has its little stamp on cool. history there uh, and go. so if you look at the pictures of it where they have all the display set up you can see like part of the wall is like Walt like curtained off so it was clearly like probably everything was pushed up against one wall and they just curtained it all off uh because i don't know how you would have moved all that stuff out like i don't know where oh, you would have put it if you had to move all that stuff out of there so that that's a neat little that's a neat little neat. footnote so what so what became oh, of the fiesta can i, fun can I mention a couple of so yes. i just want to mention we had a couple of people tweet their favorite games that they played at the fiesta fun center so at earful chuck on Twitter said he used to enjoy playing Mad Dog, McCree, Time Machine, Crossbow, and Temple of Doom. Remember the Indi remember the Indiana Jones game? I remember the Temple like, Yeah, the, 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 the mine. That was hard. The escape Dude, mine ride, man. Too. That was when you yeah. get to that scene. Yeah, it was like, kind of like. Uh, it was I, I always went down the wrong <laughs> path. <laughs> um, Jim Thomas, uh, who is at Jim at the bank says, uh, the Fiesta Fun Center was the first time I ever saw the Hercules pinball machine. Do you guys remember this? It was a literally a giant, like, four times the size of a pinball machine. Like, it was it was huge. It was, it was like this <laughs> giant scaled-up pinball machine. I remember the, the pinball, I think it was made out of wood. It was, like, as big as a billiards ball. So it was just this huge, wow. enormous uh, thing. It's like, I, I remember playing it at a... a in Castleberry, there, where Brian and I recently went to, there was a plaza there that had an uh, arcade called the Fun Machine, and they had one there too. But like, yeah, it was that was cool, and they had they had the space to put it in there. So uh, he said that was around 1980 that they had that. Uh, Joe B, who is Miami Joe two two three, he said they had the sit down uh, Star Wars arcade game that we talked about, Punch Out. If you remember the yep, Nintendo Punch Out, mentioned. body blow, body blow, body blow. In fact, in fact. So, so this is a point to, to mention, because we, we talked about this in the run-up to the episode. We talk about how there's not a lot of footage inside these arcades. And the reason right. is, um, so arcades were normally where you sent your kids 
right. while you went and did adult adult stuff. <laughs> and right. so like parents didn't follow them in to the Fiesta Fun Center to take like eight millimeter movies or home videos of their kids playing arcade games. Like it just but there is one video and I'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, I, I want to say it's 1990, uh, a family on vacation. And they, they, there's about two minutes of footage inside the Fiesta Fun Center. Now, most of the footage is their kids playing these two uh, Sega 360 games where you would sit in a cockpit and the game would physically move with the action in the game in a full 360 spin. And it's neat to watch the kid playing it. I actually figured out what game it is. It's like Space Race or something it's called. I, I forget. <laughs> but the, the, the kid's playing the game, and you can see the little tiny chain uh, rope line, like metal chain rope line, like just around the circumference of the game telling people, yeah. like, stay back like, this far <laughs> so this game doesn't swing in and kill you. You know, like, it, but, it, but it is like it, it moves. Like, you're watching it. Like, I, I would not enjoy playing it. But, like, this kid's, like, right on up in there playing it. And so and that's probably the reason that they taped it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They it was probably had maybe never even seen something. Yeah. Like I mean, they had the space to put that stuff in there. I remember they had, like, a single bowling alley in there at one point. It was like just a, like a single lane, like this little pop-up mm-hmm. mini bowling alley. A single wow, lane. One yeah. lane. Yeah. I remember that. It was actually, I believe it was two lanes, how in the ball, the bowling ball was like a little bit bigger than a softball, I remember. Like, yeah, it wasn't yeah. full size. Almost like duck pen. Yes. And it was yeah, like, like if pen. you walked, if this is my memory, you walked in the entrance, it was to the left, like kind of yep. like mm-hmm. you'd, you'd walk straight into the lane that way. And that was mid 90s. That was there, you know, early yeah. mid 90s. I remember oh, that. Okay. Um, so. You got any more? How? Yeah, Joe, Joe says also mentions Battle Zone, which was the tank. Uh, one oh, that's the tank game. Yeah. Yeah. Burger Williams, Time. Williams, Williams, right? I think Williams uh, made Battle That Zone. was an Atari oh. one. Oh, Battle, Atari. Battle okay. Zone was Atari. Moon, uh, Moon Patrol was Williams. Yeah, that was a fun that's one. Right. Uh, Burger Time, if you remember that Burger one. Time. Oh, oh, that's hard. Okay. That was hard. Yeah. Uh, DJ Jones, who is World of DJ, uh, talks about how he used to go in there with his dad with the roller quarters and they would play the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game together. Remember the four player one? Yeah. So, yeah. So he'd right. always be Leo. Yeah. there. And then I remember it's like we went in there. I talked about it before on the show in 80. I think we skipped college in like 88 or something. And they still had, you know, rows of Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Asteroids. Um, there was a an early vector game called Tail Gunner that I used to play even at Mystery Funhouse, and they they had the cockpit version of that there too. Which I, I mean, they they really got the good stuff. And uh, there were there was someone sent a picture today, and you could see Roboton twenty twenty forty eight and like two yeah. centipede machines and an asteroids, and they just had they had the best stuff there. There, there was one when I, I recall, and it was a big deal to me because it was in that era, like mid-90s, when videos were games. Like, you, it was a big video screen, and the players all had guns, and you were actually playing along with, like, an actual film. You know, like, you, you'd shoot the people, and the, the, somehow the shot interacted oh, wow. with the film. I mean, it was a huge screen. It was like that and the bowling alley were the two big things in there. But it okay. was actually like a real film because graphics weren't as good as this, obviously, is, you know, now you can make a video game that looks almost like a real film. But yeah, oh, it was, it was actually, I kind of remember this. It was like one of those laser disc games, right? Yes. 
yes. That's yeah. Yep. I, yep. I, I do remember that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember. I also remember them doing uh, golf like that. There would be like you would you mm. you would you would go up and do simulated golf uh, with a live video screen. Yep. And they used to drop those into arcades, and I think they were really developed for pro shops to help people practice their swings, but. And in that uh, that shooting game, I remember it was a, at the time blew my mind for a video game. It was a solid like two dollars or five dollars per play. Like it was really expensive. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, Fiesta Fun Center lived on until 1995, and at that time, it was closed briefly and refurbished as the Food and Fun Center. Uh, and what they did then was the game area darkened a bit. Uh, the shooting gallery was replaced with a prize redemption center. So this is where we come back to the beginning of the show in Chuck E. Cheese. Because the Chuck E. Cheese model, Dave and Busters, all of that uh, is that you go out and you do these, play these games and you get tickets uh, to then redeem for trinkets and prizes. Spider rings. Uh, Spider rings and whoopee cushions and <laughs> stress balls. I, I would love. I wish somebody had a picture of the prize redemption counter at the Fiesta Fun Center or Food and Fun Center because I really would have loved to have seen what they were dealing there. <laughs> um, you know, like were they Disney stuff? Were they like Disney cheap Disney things or were they just like the standard, you know, Chinese uh, finger the finger um, trap? Yeah. The finger trap and stuff like that. Couple erasers. Seems to be, yeah, it seems to. I'll take the giant pencil, and uh, there's the squeezy, the squeezy squirt gun, and uh, I'll take that inflatable uh, it's, it's, ring for the pool. It's so too. much yeah. work. <laughs> it, it really is. It's like, such a letdown. And the and the kids come out and they think it's the coolest thing in the world for about eight seconds. Yep. And then you're throwing that piece of crap away like three days later. That's that's but, it. Yep. But so they, they did. They, they basically turned into like a, a Chuck E. Cheese at that point uh, was the kind of the layout and the model. So I believe the the snack bar was where the present day bar is for the wave, right? Like Oh, was it to the left? Like kind of like? In, no, 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 no. When uh, you walk in down that tunnel, uh-huh. kind of straight ahead behind the check-in oh, okay. would have been the area that, that was the snack bar. And then... The area where the dining room is now was the Fiesta Fun Center dining room, plus the kitchen yeah. and the private dining rooms behind them. All of that would have been what was the Fiesta Fun Center. So, Gotcha. Okay. I, I, I'm sure I was in it at some point, but I really don't remember being in it. Um, the Food and Fun Center lasted until 2007, at which point they closed it. Uh, and moved the remaining games, or most of them, or some of them, up to the fourth floor Grand Canyon Concourse for a, into a facility called the Game Station, which was an arcade built specifically to be an arcade. Uh, and the space that was the Food and Fun Center was then closed, renovated, and turned into the Wave uh, so they closed the Concourse Steakhouse, which was their casual dining on the fourth on the Grand Canyon Concourse, and moved that into the Wave, moved the the, the casual dining option into the Wave, and the quick service that was the uh, snack bar in the Food and Fun Center uh, moved up to what is now the Contempo Cafe, 
which was the Grand Canyon Concourse Steakhouse, which was the Concourse Steakhouse, where I had an absolutely fantastic uh, steak salad in like oh, no. 1999. I remember going up there and we <laughs> took, we went over to the, we couldn't find any place to eat in the Magic Kingdom and we took the monorail over to the, to the Grand Canyon Concourse and decided to sit down and I just remember getting a steak salad and it was fantastic. There's a food memory from That's like 25 cool. years ago. So yeah. So they moved it up to the old gift shop, which was called Fantasia. Oh yeah, I remember that one. With like the the, the <clears throat> fancy light show on the side. Yeah, the fiber the... optics in the back and like yes. a big like sorcerer Mickey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what is that space now, Hal? Because it's not an arcade. So anymore. it is now where you can drop off your children for uh, what do they call it? A luminol yes. change. Yes. Mm-hmm. Come back, court low, put them in there. They're like humming like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the uh, it's like the kids club now. Uh, it's Toy Story themed. They, I believe they closed the Lilo's Playhouse at the. They did close the one at the yeah, Polynesian. Yeah, so now yeah. that's kind of like the centralized uh, activity center for kids. So you can go drop your kids off there, head up onto California Grill and have a nice expensive and quieter dinner if you so choose. Or go to Trader Sam's yes. or wherever, and your kids are well taken care of. All right. Well, that's that's a nice legacy, I guess. It's so the successor to the Fiesta Fun Center is still a place you dump your kids. It's called. Yeah. It's actually called. I have here, unless they change it, the Pixar Play Zone. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. there you go. Uh, don't they call, okay. don't they call it the Pixar Play Zone? All the places they offer it now I, wasn't that yeah. the, <laughs> the so. thing they were doing? Yeah. yeah. And and one of the reasons why arcades in general, including the one in Tomorrowland, has has kind of went away, um, especially with these redemption games. There there was a law enacted in Florida. Oh, I want to say it was 2015 or 2016. That was designed to get rid of these like bingo halls, these electronic bingo halls right. that would uh, entice elderly people to to play bingo and and probably lose more money than they should. And these were fairly common, especially in in uh, in cities in Florida that had you know large elderly populations. Mm. You'd see them in uh, like strip malls and things. Uh, so they enacted this law, but the deal was the way it was written. It was kind of gray as to whether or not uh, it could also count for redemption games as well. So uh, being precautious, and also since uh, Disney no longer owns the games, they actually contract with a third-party company to bring the games in and and handle all that stuff. They just decided, you know, it would be better for them to just dump the redemption games altogether and just not worry about it. Uh, you know, it, maybe they could be subject to a lawsuit. They they didn't know, so rather be safe than sorry. They just got rid of all the games altogether. So there's probably still some like quarter non-redemption games in in some areas, uh, but this this took out like a large swath of games. And I imagine the redemption games are probably the real money makers in the arcade. So you know that probably was the nail in the coffin for them. Yeah, I know the ones that... Yeah, the contemporary one is gone. Yeah, the poor, the, well, the, gone. Uh, the, the moderate resorts still have them Yeah, and so as far the... as I know, because the values, too, they they don't have... I mean, they're not big, but they're, you know, 20 machines, probably. At least. I mean, there's enough there. Yeah, there's there's enough there that, that uh, to keep people entertained. But you could do an entire episode. We won't, but you <laughs> could do an entire episode on what on the arcades at off-property locations 
to this day, uh, you can walk in and find machines that were clearly there uh, for 30 years and then right next to machines that are fairly new. Um, it's and, and it's always a very interesting mixed bag of what the, there's. There's a crane machine in every single one of them, though, that has some awful 27 cent <laughs> stuffed animal that you can win. But there are crane. There are always crane machines in them. But, yeah, the off property hotels are always interesting for that kind of stuff to see what vending machines and and uh, arcade games and stuff like that they have. Cool. Well, Ryan, you'll have to give us like a an enhanced Excellent. like uh, vending machine report. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that is that is my that is my brand, yes, it is. isn't it? So, <laughs> we'll wrap things up here by saying that we've probably neglected to mention a lot of the other resort arcade locations, and as we mentioned, the Tomorrowland one a couple of times, which was pretty big, um, you know, for a time. There was the whole back half of that gift shop that you exit uh, Space Mountain into. Yeah, the Tomorrowland Power and Light Company. Yeah, I mean that was that was a very large spot uh, that had a lot of had a lot of games in it, and you know, so yeah, we could touch on on more of them, but uh, I think we've probably exhausted the topic at this point. <laughs> That's right. But That's right. I'm sure we've forgotten stuff you'll want to write to us about and <laughs> mention. <laughs> Oh, I, I know what I wanted to mention. There is one I forgot to mention. Uh, one of the articles, and I'm going to forget which one it was, but uh, they mentioned the Morgana machine in Fiesta Fun Center. And oh yes, uh, Todd or Hal was talking about the fortune teller machine, where the the lady would come on and say a couple of things. The Morgana machine, which was not made by Disney, it was a produced outside, but they posted a picture of it, and it was really cool because it had a and you know you'd put your money in for your fortune or wisdom from from Morgana and Morgana was a styrofoam head that they would then project in like a haunted mansion type effect uh a woman's face onto and she would talk to you and be like tell you things about the future i guess or mystical things nice and uh apparently there are still some of these machines out there floating around so i guess i got to track one down now to get the full fiesta fun center experience well, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, all the research and everything that went with it. Much appreciated. So I think before we uh, end it out here, we got to talk a little bit about our merchandise and everything that we've got uh, going on, and then we'll talk a little about where we're going next. So um, how, as usual, you've got some great designs out there, and I've got to say the, the sales have been fantastic. So thanks to everybody who's been purchasing T-shirts. Um, some big sales coming up in the, in the springtime, so keep your eyes out. Our T-shirts will be $14. Uh, as always, you can find uh, our designs at retrowdw.com forward slash support us, and all proceeds go to help keep this show on the air. As you know, we do not advertise, so any uh, monetary assistance comes from your purchases. Um, how you know? I, I have a request. I almost want a pork roll T-shirt because we've bought up pork roll <laughs> so much. Don't, do we need something like that? Uh, you know? I, I had I, I had pork roll for breakfast this morning. Look at that! Really? Yeah, wow, uh, I, I, I'm I'm all out. I have to always have to on podcast day. You have pork roll. <laughs> 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 he well, always has coffee while watching Radar too. It's amazing. <laughs> what? Radar, <laughs> sir. What? sir. Yeah, Todd. Actually, we're debuting a new one today. Uh, it is for our fans of Space Mountain. In that episode, 
you may recall that we talked about how there was a very unusual little display from RCA of Nipper the mm-hmm. dog in yeah. a UFO at the where you would walk in there. Uh, and as it turns out, that uh, that image of Nipper the dog listening to the Victrola has mm-hmm. fallen into the public domain. Uh, they no longer really? use that. So uh, I have crafted a fine T-shirt of Nipper in the UFO. So uh, all fourteen of you, like old Space Mountain fans <laughs> or dog fans, oh, we got a lot of dog fans. or dog fans. That's true. That's crazy. Or RCA He's fans. public domain now. I mean, yep, he was on electronics they, like uh, recently. I feel like maybe t- twenty years ago, but still, I mean. So they, when they, uh, when they got the. The trademark for that, it's, I mean, this is not a trademark podcast, but apparently it started with uh, HMV, his master's voice in England, uh, and they still use it for the HMV stores in the UK. Um, They, when they bought that technology, RCA bought that technology to distribute it in the United States, they licensed that logo uh, based on an oil painting. Uh, and then over the years, uh, they uh, trademarked it for additional uses in radio and all kinds of other products that we've seen. Well, RCA has systematically gotten out of all of those businesses. Uh, and right now, they only own the the rights uh, to use that image for selling like one particular thing. Like, I can't remember if it's radio i think it might be radios or there's like just one item that that trademark applies to and for every other usage of that trademark it is now in the public domain so uh just rca cares not to use that like i don't even i think rca still barely exists as a yeah, brand I was say what do they even make that right. they would put it on but my yeah my, t- my tv's an rca oh is it okay yeah look at that so they're still hanging out a little bit well yeah. was, they is were it... three years ago when i bought it i i don't yeah. know if... yeah i think they've been acquired by I can't remember now. They sold their parts of their business to Philips, and it's you know it's yeah. one of those things now. Where over the course of time, it's like it's been sold and resold and resold. So, anyways, enjoy your Space Mountain Nipper T-shirt if if you're into that sort of thing. Nice, that is cool. Thanks a lot, Hal. Looking forward to that one. All right, so well, I'm sure Hal will add some other ones as the year goes by. We always appreciate everybody who purchases our T-shirts and also gives us donations. We've got a lot of nice people sending in their donations to keep us on the air. Uh, you can just go right directly to RetroWDW.com, and in the upper right-hand side corner, there's a Donate button. And best of all, your donations are tax-deductible in this tax season coming up. Uh, you know, Think about next year. If you need a deduction, we'd greatly appreciate it. Um, guys, we got to talk about where to go next month. Um, I came up with something that was a little on the cusp, but I think we've kind of agreed that it would be a, a good topic to touch base on. Uh, it's taking us back into the Magic Kingdom, over to the Circle Vision 360 uh, theater when it was converted into the Timekeeper. So we will go back in time and visit with Jules Verne and a few other notable... Nine Eye. His- Is Nine Eye going to be with us? H.G. Yeah, Wells. H.G. Wells. I mean, the the, the uh, Paris Exposition of, what was it, 1893? Something like that, yeah. 67, I don't know, 1800, somewhere in there. Something. Here's something I don't remember. As as a hater of Circle, Circle Vision films, <laughs> um, did you sit in that one or did you stand? stand. I don't remember. You, you stand. You stood, okay. You, you were standing. It yeah, had yeah. one of the coolest, like, snippets on the vacation planning videos because they'd pan across the the animatronic and the people and the, the background it was yeah. like time travel like 
in that. Well, snippet. and that was the I'm jumping ahead an episode now, but that was the, that was one of the interesting <laughs> things about it was <laughs> we're going to record that, right that now. <laughs> you had the the circle vision, but there was other stuff going on in the room yep. for you to focus on and not just stand there and be like, "This is China." <laughs> Here is an egg roll in the Forbidden City of China. Right. Look behind you. There is a lotus tree. You know. Mom, look behind America us. America the beautiful. You're missing all the stuff behind us. Yeah, like it's I hate circle vision movies. They're spinning around. Do not sit on the railing. For your safety, I've invented rails for you to lean on. I call them lean rails. Please do not sit on the lean rails. Because they're there to lean on. So, well, we will take you back next month, not in the next minute, as Brian seems to be jumping the gun here, as he said. <laughs> but uh, we will we'll definitely take you back ne- next month to the timekeeper. So until next month, we appreciate all of our listeners. Give us a shout-out and review on iTunes if you can. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas, please send them to podcast at retrowdw.com. And as always, we'll talk to you next month. And Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at retrowdw.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Sayonara. <laughs>